Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon. Uh, what happens here is uh, one of my writers, in this case, David. Thank you, David. Has written me a script. This is a famous one. This one is uh, of, like, American serial killers. And I feel like there's quite, <laughs> quite a lot of them. But isn't, this guy's one of the most notorious, especially, like, in a historical context. H.H. Holmes, lady killer and child murderer. And... I made a video about this guy years ago on a YouTube channel that I do called Biographics. And he had some sort of like crazy hotel with trapdoors and all of this stuff. And uh, Dave was like, Simon, a lot of this is, I mean, not overblown, but like a little bit like, um, there's been a bit of a sprinkling of creative, not creative, artistic license. That's the phrase throughout the years. And I'm like, there's no surprise there. And I'm just wondering... <laughs> How much, how wrong has David found my biographics video to be? Has he, because he'd never say it to me because he's too polite. But he'd be like, Simon, I watched your biographies video. That was incorrect. That was incorrect. That was incorrect. <laughs> David, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not really. I don't know. It's probably good because uh, I, I like to think my writers do. I have no idea. I can't remember who wrote that H.H. Holmes one back on my uh, biographics channel. I'm sure it was good because I just make brilliant stuff consistently all the time. That's sarcasm. Uh, let's get into it, shall we? Detective Frank Gayup stood in the dirt cellar of number 16 St. Vincent Street. The smell of rotting flesh hung in the air. Taking the shovel he had borrowed from next door neighbor, he began to dig with a sense of dread mingled with resignation. He knew exactly what he was likely to find. Frank Geyer was a 19-year veteran of the Philadelphia Police Force. He was no stranger to murder. Age 42, the stout figure, sharp, serious eyes, thinning, slicked-back hair, and a large, bushy moustache partially occluding his bitter scowl, he sank the shovel into the loose soil of the cellar, working steadily, quietly, along with his thoughts. Did he dirt sprinkled his dress shoes and the cuffs of his tailor-made trousers? All I can think of there is like, how would he hear? Why would he be alone with his own thoughts? Why is he not listening to a podcast? Why is he not listening to the cat when he's digging for bodies? When's a better time to listen to the casual criminalist and tell your friends who also dig for bodies about the casual criminalist? Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you've, I don't know, do people who like work in the police and mortuaries and stuff go home and listen to truth? Probably not. It's not like I go home and, no, I do watch documentaries. Oh, so maybe they do. And maybe they do. <laughs> It was the summer of 1895. Oh, that's why he's not listening to podcasts. Okay, I see. Historical context. For eight months, Frank had traced the movements of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes across the United States and into Canada. Frank was on the trail of the three missing children of Benjamin Piterzel. Pi Piterzel. Thanks for the pronunciation, Guy David. I'll do my best to remember it throughout the rest of this episode. A man who had been murdered. Well, he's just been murdered, so he's probably not going to come up again. Woo! Well, that's, that's really morbid, isn't it, Simon? He's dead, and that's his only thing in the historical record, and you're celebrating that. You psycho. After the murder, three of Piderzel's five children were said to be in custody of H.H. H. Holmes, their exact whereabouts unknown. Frank had been assigned to find them, and Frank was very good at his job. The detective had arrived in Toronto, where he spent eight days searching for signs of a house that H.H. H. Holmes may have rented. It was then he received a tip that the house down on St. Vincent Street had been rented by a man fitting Holmes's description. Ah, the past. 
Like whenever he rents it, it's like, here's a giant contract you have to sign. I'm going to need a copy of your ID. Going to need a bank statement. It's like, what? What? <laughs> okay. And then you go around to buying a house. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't even know I had six forms of ID. <laughs> he was said to be traveling with two young girls. No word was said of the little boy who was also missing. Months earlier, in late October 1894, a neighbor, Mr. Reeves, saw Alice and Nellie Piazzol sitting on the veranda of 16 St. Vincent Street. Nellie clutched a wooden egg that opened at the top, launching a spring-loaded toy snake out of it, much to the young girl's amusement. That sounds like a good toy. I'd get my kids one of those. She'd love that. The boy's too young. He'd just be terrified of it, because he's a coward. Holmes had borrowed a shovel from Reeves, saying that he wanted to dig some furrows in the dirt cellar in order to grow some potatoes. <laughs> I'd be like, if he asked me this, I'd be like, what is a furrow? <laughs> God, my vocabulary is so bad sometimes. I'm like, how? I'm like relatively educated, but my vocabulary is appalling. I'm not as educated as David, because David's email handle is Dr. David Baker, and I'm like, David's a big brain. <laughs> The shovel which Holmes had borrowed was the same tool that Detective Frank Geyer now clutched. There was no sign that any potatoes had been planted in the cellar. Uh-oh. Why? How do you grow potatoes in a cellar? What are you up to? Potatoes need light to grow. That's how plants work. If someone... I can't believe the first question is, what's a furrow? My question would be like, mate, this is 1895. You're not going to get some hydroponic going in your basement. What are you talking about? As Frank continued to lift the dirt out of a recently disturbed patch of earth, the stench of putrid flesh only got worse. It became overpowering. Whatever or whomever was buried down there in the dark cellar had already become badly decomposed. The decay was worsened by the summer heat. Digging down to the depth of only three feet or 91 centimeters, Frank discovered a bone belonging to a small human being, a young girl's forearm. Continuing to excavate the scene more gently now as not to damage any further remains, Frank uncovered the frail bodies of Alice and Nelly Piazzo. They had been stripped naked, and each of them lay on their sides, facing each other in the fetal position. Some accounts claim that Nelly's feet had been cut off so the girl could not be identified by a club foot. Other accounts attest that the bodies were interred in the cellar, completely intact and whole. Ah yes, 1895. The problem is this was 130 years ago. So... Basically, you do get these things where it's like some accounts say this, some accounts say that, and it's like, do we know which one's correct? No, <laughs> there's like no primary evidence for this. And you're like, okay, <laughs> the past, everybody. The bodies of the two girls were indeed in an advanced state of decomposition. Tiny red worms infested their shallow grave. Their skin and vital organs had already begun to liquefy in the damp, malodorous earth. There's another big rain word. I know what malodorous means. You know when you read words and you're like, I know what that means. But it's a word that I just never use in casual conversation. And I wish I would. Because when you meet someone who uses big words, you're like, yeah, I, I, at least I am. I don't, I guess I could, you could also have the, well, when someone's using them and you feel like they're purposefully using big words, then you're like, well, you're a bit of a prick. But if you, if it's just someone who's using the correct big word, you know, where it's like, they're not like, oh, you know, like this. They just use the correct word without even thinking about it or trying to sound smart. I'm always like, oh, I'm a little bit jealous of that because <laughs> it makes you look so clever. But then it's like, if I tried to use words like malodorous, everyone would think I was a prick because it would be blatantly obvious that I'm trying really hard to sound smart. So I just don't try. Anyone else film that? Is that just me? Is that a weird quirk about me? I sometimes wonder if other people feel like these same things. <laughs> Let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. Oh my God, we were talking about something really horrible and I just took it aside to a comedic aside. 
It's not really appropriate. When later called upon to identify the bodies of her children, what remains of their flesh was blackened and falling off, and Carrie Piazzo could only identify Alice by the thick braid of her hair. Oh my god. Oh my god. This is not nice. Some accounts claim that H.H. H. Holmes murdered the girls by forcing them into a steamer trunk, whereupon he pumped it full of noxious gas with a hose in order to asphyxiate the girls. H.H. H. Holmes, you're up to some, like, proto-Nazi shit, you weirdo. Other accounts... There's not a proto, though. I used that word, and I'm like... I'm pretty sure I'm using it correctly. Ah, maybe I am a big brain. Although it's not that complicated of a word. Other accounts simply state that H.H. Holmes had poisoned the girls by slipping essence of nightshade into a mixture of other deadly toxins into their food. Dr. Holmes, after all, for some years had run a pharmacy. He knew what he was about. H.H. H. Holmes had attempted to burn the clothing the girls were wearing at the time that he murdered them, but he had packed and dead at the delicate bundles of cloth too tightly into the small metal chimney, and large scraps of their clothing survived. Holmes also appears to have made no attempt to destroy or remove Nellie's snake egg contraption from the home, and several short notes that the girls had written to their mother. Uh-oh. Come on, dude. Everyone knows this. Anyone who's burned a book, and I've burned many books in my life, um, knows that you've got to ruffle the book up. You can't just put a book on a thing and set it on fire. It's not going to work. It's too thick or dense or whatever. You have to, like, tear it up and, like, crinkle the pages. That's how you burn books. It's useful information there for the next time you're burning books. These belongings were discovered by Frank Gare and packed away into evidence. After murdering the two young girls, Holmes abandoned the 16th St. Vincent Street house and disappeared. When another tenant moved into the house, they could not bear to go down into the cellar or use it for storing anything due to the terrible smell which hung in the air and refused to dissipate and only grew stronger. One, they just relaxed. Anyway, it smells like there are bodies decomposing down in the cellar, love. And it, the wife's like, oh, I don't know let's just not use the cellar it's like well we rented this house and it's got this big cellar i thought we could grow some potatoes oh don't worry about it if my smeller smelled like smelled like rotting bodies i wouldn't call the police i'd call a handyman and be like hey is the can you can you ever look down this sound smells like something's rotting down there can you go down there maybe we can damp proof it maybe we could do something like that and he'll go down there and be like mate let's call the police because either you've been burying bodies down there or someone else has, and I'm guessing it's someone else, because you called me to investigate the smell. Which, unless you're very self-sabotaging, would be like, why are we going so deep into this story? It's not necessary. But that's what I'm saying. I wouldn't call some. I wouldn't call the police. I'd just be like, what's that smell? That sounds like something a builder needs to fix. And then I'd get arrested. And they'd be like, were you trying to cover up crimes? It's like, no, I just I wanted to use my cellar. I wanted to put like little wines down there. Maybe like a sofa. I don't know. What do people convert basements into? <laughs> I wanted to make it into a man cave. <laughs> I'm not trying. I'm not trying to cover up crimes. With the discovery of the bodies of Alice and Nelly Pietzel, Frank's job was not yet finished. He set about locating the whereabouts of the little boy, Howard Pietzel, just eight years old, who some weeks earlier had been separated from his sister. Using oblique references to Howard in the letters that Holmes had peri 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 periodically... Come on, Simon, get it together. It's uh, it's 8.30 on a Monday morning. Um, this is my first thing recording of the week, so I apologize for slipping over my words, rambling too much. I also don't know if you can hear it, I'm a little bit congested. My kid got a cold, and I was like, and lately she she's, has a little trouble sleeping alone. She'll, so she'll like come into the bed in the morning, and I'm like, and you can just feel her breathing. She's like breathing on my face. And then she's like, <coughs> and you're like, oh God, you just coughed all over my face. And I'm like, I'm definitely getting sick. And then I got sick. <laughs> But I'm dosed up on ibuprofen and caffeine. We're good. We're good. There's 22 more pages of this script. <laughs> Holy shit.
David. Why'd you do this to me? He delivered me one that was 50 pages. I'm like, David, this is a four-hour podcast, David. Why? Using oblique references to Howard in the letters that Holmes had periodic sent the boy's mother and using witness testimony from Toronto neighbours who had spoken with Alice and Nellie, Frank determines that Howard Pietzel was allegedly attending school in Indianapolis back in the United States. Frank gravely doubted that this was actually the case. Yeah, he's not. He's not back at school. It's like, where did he go? Oh no, I didn't bury him in the basement with the other children. He went off to finish school in the United States and no one's ever heard from him again. How about we just dig a little bit more in the basement? Let's just dig around the little basement a little bit more, okay? After arriving in Indianapolis, Frank spent weeks dropping by almost every rental house in the city, roughly 900 houses in total. He was looking for any sign that H.H. Holmes and a small boy had been there. Finally, Frank alighted on the suburb of Irvington. Alighted is another one. I, they say it on some undergrounds, London underground tubes. You'll like be riding around and they'll be like, change here for Elephant and Castle line or whatever. You know, there's normal Elephant and Castle's not a line. It's like a stop where I used to live, actually. Um, there, there'd be like these lines. And then some of them, it's like a light here for Sloan Square. And you're like, what, does, what is this a light? Does that mean change? And it just, it, yeah, it does. Just some of them say a light and I had no idea. I must have been like 20 years old when I finally Googled a light. The detective discovered that Holmes had rented a house a few days before disappearing again. This was two weeks before Holmes murdered the Piazzol girls in Toronto. On October the 3rd, 1894, H.H. Holmes had gone by a repair shop in Indianapolis to get some surgical equipment sharpened. Uh-oh, that sounds serial killery. Eyewitness testimony stated that a boy was with him at the time. On October the 5th, Holmes hired a spotty-faced teenager named Elvit Mormon. Wait, we know he was a spotty-faced teenager, but we don't know whether he cut off the girl's clubbed foot. Come on past. <laughs> Can we write down the important details? And the only thing we remember about this teenager is that he was spotty and maybe murdered. Come on, Simon, have some respect. Jesus. <laughs> it's so, I find it easier to distance myself from the crimes when they're less modern. Like, I know it's bad, but 100 years ago, it feels somehow less immediate. Whereas if this was set in the present day, I'd be like, I don't know, more respectful, which doesn't really fit. I guess because one thing is everyone who's related to this case is long dead. Like, these are the age of my great-great-grandparents, and they're all dead. I've never even met them. My parents have never even met them. I did meet my great-grandmother uh, one time on a 100th birthday party, and I never met her again, and then she died. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Simon, what's wrong with you? Why are you telling this story? It's not important. That same day, Holmes entered a drugstore near Irvington and purchased cocaine. Woo! Chloral hydrate and chloroform. Holmes is throwing a party. A weird party. Possibly with murder. We also know at the time that Holmes had a vial of cyanide and a clutch of wolfsbane in his possession. On October the 8th, wolfsbane, I have no idea what it is, but it doesn't sound good, does it? Look, wolves are terrifying, and if it's the bane of a wolf, that's not going to be a good thing. On October the 8th, Holmes picked up his surgical equipment at the repair shop, the blades and bone saw now having been dutifully sharpened. On October the 10th, 1894, Howard Piazzel approached a local housemaid, asked her where he could buy food. Holmes had put him in charge of finding dinner for the evening. The housemaid gave the boy some eggs and butter, and Howard insisted on paying for it with the money that Holmes had given him. Elby Mormon, the local errand boy, claims he saw Howard Piazzel for the last time 
around 6 p.m. that evening. On that very same night, October the 10th, H.H. Holmes murdered the eight-year-old boy. Some accounts claim Hobbs poisoned him by spiking his food. Other accounts claim he chloroformed and strangled the child. After murdering him, Holmes used his surgical equipment to dismember his corpse. A consummate professional, Dr. Holmes left no blood stains behind. He then stuffed the boy's arms, legs, head and torso into the wood stove that he had constructed, along with some gnawed old corn cobs and chunks of wood. He then doused the child's body in oil and set it ablaze. Jesus Christ, why? The fire burned hot and successfully cremated much of the body. What little remained of Howard Pietzel was then quickly scattered and buried at various points around the property. Says, wow. Why is people's obsession with burying things in their own house? Are you insane? Look, it's already just bits. Just go for a long walk. I don't want to give advice to criminals, but if you've burned a body and there's little bits of it left over, don't bury it all in your back la- backyard, you idiot. Just every day, just take a little bit of the body, go on a really long walk and just throw it in a river. Or like in a dump. I don't know. What's wrong with you? Or just keep doing this so it's easier for you to get caught. The house's caretaker, Peter Ireland's later said that the stench of the remains grew so bad that he just covered the whole house with lime powder because he couldn't locate the exact source. On the same night as the murder, Holmes swiftly left the house for the train station, where he arrived at 9pm. That means that in the few hours between the last sighting of Howard Piazza at 6pm and Holmes's arrival at the train station, the man had quickly murdered, dismembered, and cremated the boy, burying and scattering the remains, and scarcely leaving any trace of the killing, all in under three hours. Well... It's like, okay, so he was in a rush. Look, if you're going to murder someone, don't rush. What's like, don't rush. Think about it. I don't, it's just so stupid. Why are criminals, I like that criminals are so stupid, but Jesus. Holmes thereupon caught a train to Chicago, where he arrived late at night and checked into a hotel. In his haste to leave, Adrian Holmes neglected to clean out the flu underneath the stove. A flue is a pipe on a stove that takes waste gases, smoke, and small solid particles emanating from a fire and blows them outside your home. When, months later, Detective Frank Gare arrived at the house in Irvington, he looked inside the flue and found a few of Howard Piazzol's teeth and some bits of his bones. Ah, Because Frank conducted his investigation long after Howard had been killed, the charged viscera homes scattered around the property had already badly decomposed into almost nothing. As a result, a few teeth and some bone fragments were the only signs that Howard Pietzel ever existed. Nevertheless, Frank was moving closer to discovering the extent of the callous and horrific crimes committed by H. H. Holmes, whom the mustachioed detective in characteristic 19th century purple prose referred to as, quote, Verily an artist in roguery language in the past was like it's hard to read sometimes but it was like people put more effort into it didn't they nowadays it's like yeah he was a sicko (laughs) verily an artist in roguery i wish i spoke like this the discovery of the scanty remains of the young boy ended frank's assiduous and painstaking eight month search for the piazzol children they had all been slain in the coldest fashion imaginable but at least now the facts were known the detective later wrote all the toil all the weary days and weeks of travel alternating between faith and hope and discouragement and despair all paid off in that one moment truth like the sun sometimes submits to being obscured but like the sun it only submits for a time everyone writes amazing this guy's like he's like he's a pi he's a private dick or a detective he's a detective of some kind i don't know i'm sure david told me and i already forgot but this guy is looking for these kids and he's also like writing about it like poetry amazing the truth of the career of H. H. Holmes was soon to dawn upon the 19th century world to the utter shock and horror of those who heard the tale. Meet Herman Webster Mudgett. 
Come with me, if you will, to a tiny, quiet New England village nestling among the picturesquely rugged hills of New Hampshire. Here in the year 1861, I, Herman W. Mudgett, the author of these pages, was born. These are the words written by Mudgett, alias H. H. Holmes, in his autobiography, Holmes' Own Story, which the child murderer scrawled down on paper in prison in 1895. Oh, I just realized this is the, the primary rule of the casual criminalist. Like, we talk about like how criminals are idiots all the time. Often they're writing down their crimes. It's number one. The number one rule, don't write down your crimes. However, if you've been caught for all your crimes and you're in prison, now's a good time to write down your crimes. I mean, why not? You're already in prison forever. Maybe they're going to, you know, pop you off. Kind of, now's, why not? You can now. The autobiography itself is of little evidential value because in addition to being a killer, it's also always a compulsive liar. Herman Mudgett was born in the hamlet of Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May the 16th, 1861 to Levi Horton Mudgett, a farmer, house painter, and later postmaster, and Theodate, Theodate Page Mudgett, a dutiful housewife. They were devout Methodists. Herman was the third born of five children. The Mudgett's family's reputation in the community was spotless. No tales of alcoholism or abuse. In fact, by all accounts, it would appear that Herman Mudgett had a perfectly normal childhood. Quite unusual for most children who grow up to be serial killers. Yeah! Super rare. Normally, it's this balance. It's like, okay, so the person is born with a bit of a predisposition to be a psycho killer, and then also, they get abused the out of by their parents because of course that happens but not in this case it seems like he's like more 90 percent psycho i like born born killer natural born killer isn't that a movie natural born killers i feel like that's a movie it's also unclear whether Herman was born with primary psychopathy, another hallmark of serial killers, which usually offers an explanation for those murderous individuals who do not come from broken homes. The classic telltale sign of a psychopathic child is of, uh, I'm not even, I haven't even read it, but I'm gonna guess, torturing animals features. Is of course, the torture of animals. Big brain. Also, exactly what you'd expect after doing hundreds of hours of podcasts about crime. Yet, when interviewed Herman's mother, Theodate said, quote, I never knew him to torment animals. Some boys, you know, like to torment kittens, and sometimes they are very cruel to them. But Herman was too tender-hearted for anything like that. This does not preclude the possibility that Herman was a psychopath, but it does rule out the most obvious manifestation of it in childhood. A school friend described Mudgett as quiet, studious, faithful, with refined tastes, not joining in with the rough and ready games of the other boys at school and almost always coming top in his class. The other mothers in the neighborhood knew him as a well-behaved boy and he was a favorite of theirs. Another school friend described Mudgett as, quote, the mildest tempered, most inoffensive man I've ever met. Either something changes in his life or he already has an incredible psycho killer mask. You know the mask? You have to see it where it's just like they seem so normal. It's like, what's that? That, that guy? Was it Gacy? And it's like, yeah, he's just normal guy. He's a pillar of the community. He's on all these boards. He's a politician. Everyone likes him. And then he's dressing up as a clown and burying children in his basement. F all of this would imply that as far as serial killers go, Mudgett's case is quite unusual. No childhood abuse. No psychopathy. But there is an alternative explanation. Even as a child, Mudgett was skilled at pulling the wool over people's eyes. If we look below the surface, a few cracks begin to appear. Neighbors accused Herman of petty theft to the tune of 43 cents and trying to get paid twice by the local priest for the same job and defaulting on a payment for a pair of shoes. Other neighbors attest that while Herman was never really rude or horrible to people, he was fairly dishonest and grasping around money. Yeah, okay, well... Again, this would imply not that he's some psycho killer. 
at all. Just these, just not the most moral dude ever. All of this would point towards a budding psychological profile of a con man. Exactly. It's like, this guy's a con man. And con man, I don't like, there's an obvious difference between con man and murderer. Like, con man is like, oh, it's not good. That's not, and there's also, you know, the levels of con man. If you're like, I just did a, a video. Was it on Casual Criminalist? I think it was. About a guy who was like conning people with a hitman website. And I'm like, well, he's not the worst con man ever. Because he's conning people who were going to have someone murdered. Or like that TV show Hustle. And they only con criminals and horrible people. I'm like, you always want to support those guys. You're like, yeah, get it, get it. And then there's like con men who just con regular people. And then there's murderers. And then there's like multiple psycho killers like H.H. Holmes. It's all a scale, isn't it? Still the scale. Many such people are also psychopaths. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's, their game is to defraud people of money rather than to rape or murder them. Again, and again, if you if you are a psychopath, how about just be a really good con man? There's no need to get into the rape and murder. Just rip people off. Because, you know, look, what would I rather have done to me? Would I rather be ripped off or would I rather be raped and murdered? I can tell you. I can tell you which one the answer is. It's to be con. Such a profile would fit Herman Mudgett quite well. Clean cut and inoffensive on the outside and on the inside compulsively driven to deceive and steal or whatever he could. Herman Mudgett was born wall-eyed with his left eye always straying to the side. As such, Mudgett rarely looked at people in the eye when he spoke to them, heightening the impression of shiftiness and duplicity. He was also something of a loner, not keeping any close friends amongst the other children. In his autobiography, Herman Mudgett claims that two older boys who were bullying him dragged him into the local local doctor office to show him a human skeleton rather than be frightened herman said he was fascinated and this drove him to want to enter the field of medicine while much of his autobiography is nonsense this particular story is a ring of truth when Herman was 16 he met clara lovering of the nearby town of luden new hampshire the story of i like the name clara it's a nice name the story of their meeting goes that at a church social i wanted to name uh a kid clara one of like it was one of the names bandied around my wife's i just don't like it that much and i'm like that's okay so we chose a different name the story of their which i like as well the story of their meeting goes that at church social herman mudgett saw clara flirting with another boy and an infuriated herman asked the boy to step outside whereupon a jealous herman threatened to punch his lights out if he didn't leave clara alone Evidently, Clara's heart fluttered at this display of masculine aggression, and Herman <laughs> escorted her home arm in arm, which in 1877 was tantamount to second base. Yeah, this would play out really differently today. The next day, Clara would be like, uh, can you stop that? That is toxic masculine. Wait, so she was flirting with another boy. <laughs> he comes over, it's like, stop it. These days, it'd be like, uh, that's not okay. Let her do her own shit, Herman. Jesus Christ. You don't own her, Herman. This isn't 1890. Oh, wait, no, it is. The next day, Herman claimed to friends that he and Clara were engaged to be married. For 15 months, Herman and Clara were virtually inseparable, and the two married in secret on July the 4th, 1878, in front of a justice of the peace. Initially, the marriage was kept a secret, and Herman and Clara continued to live separately with their respective parents. Wait, that's weird. I thought people got married in the past so they could, you know... You know, like, I guess Methodist. I don't really know what a Methodist is, but I assume in the 1800s they weren't like, yeah, sex before marriage. Why not? I thought people in the past, you know, let's get married quickly so we can get down to business. When Herman eventually told his mother of the marriage a few months later, she quipped, she couldn't have done much worse. She probably will have to support you. What? Wait, he was top of his class. He's going to be a doctor. What are you talking about? You sound mean. 
Dr. Smegma. Clara's family gave Herman a job working as a clerk in a grocery store in East Concord, not long after Clara gave birth to their son, Robert Mudgett. At the time, Herman's salary meant that he could not even afford to keep a household for his family, so Clara and the baby continued to live with her parents. But Herman's ambitions would have become ambitions would have become a medical doctor. In 1879, Herman quit his job at the grocery store and returned home to Gilmanton to study under Dr. White, a Civil War Army surgeon in his late 60s. There he performed numerous dissections on cadavers with the good doctor. Oh, yes, the past. You didn't have to go to medical school. You just said, how do you become a doctor? You apprentice, much like a carpenter. <laughs> I like it. I, I do generally, I think apprenticeships are super underrated. Like, but for medicine, I feel like there should be some, you know, solid book learning going on. After a year's apprenticeship in 1880, Herman Mudgett left Gilmanton to formally study medicine at school in Burlington, Vermont. Okay, well, there you go, on Dr. Rye's recommendation. Brilliant. While at medical school, Herman stayed at a boarding house with a roommate named Fred Ingalls. Herman asked Ingalls not to tell anyone he was married. Ingalls raised an eyebrow, but agreed to keep it a secret. Herman Mudgett then promptly started sitting on the landlady's daughter at the point that people whispered that they were going to get engaged. This pissed off Fred Ingalls, and he told everyone that Mudgett was already married, ruining Mudgett's chances of bedding the girl. A little later, Herman caught Ingalls using his moustache wax without his permission, and an infuriated her and beat the living shit out of Ingalls, giving him two black eyes and a scratched-up face. Holy sh! Can you imagine? It's just like, hey mate, how's it going? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, uh, I'm sorry. I told everyone you were married and caused this big scandal. And Herman D just sees him using that mustache. It's like, mother. That my mustache wax. You touch again. You keep your mustache wax out of my your. You keep that mustache wax out of your hands. At the boarding house. Herman Mudgett conducted chemistry experiments using a variety of beakers, vials, and chemicals that he'd lifted from the laboratory. He also tried bringing home cadavers. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> what? One day, the landlady was attracted upstairs by a foul, rotting smell. She found a dead body under Herman's bed. A traumatized landlady forbade Mudgett from bringing any more dead bodies home with him. It's a bit like, Herman, Herman, we didn't think it necessary to put in your rental contract that you can't bring de dead bodies home. We sort of just considered it rote, but, uh... We're going to have to add that. You're going to need to sign an updated rental contract with the body stipulation, okay? While in medical school, Mudgett took out ad space in the Burlington Free Press, offering to teach shorthand writing, a way for note-takers to quickly jot things down in cipher. The whole thing was a swindle. Mudgett did not know shorthand. He took a bit of money up front from unwitting customers and then dismantled the business. Uh-oh. After a <laughs> And that was the end of it. Apparently, he was a con man as well. After a single term at med school, Mudgett had run out of cash, so he went on a hiatus to teach at a school back in Gilmanton to save up more tuition money. At the school, Mudgett is said to have regularly and brutally whipped the kids. Holy sh**. An anonymous account states that on one particular occasion, Mudgett borrowed an amputated foot from Dr. Wright and brought it into class to show the children a bit of anatomy, thoroughly horrifying them. After Hernan's arrest in 1894, the school superintendent vehemently denied that this ever happened on his watch, but Herman was dismissed from the school that same year, so it's unclear what happened. Herman was furious and wrote a ten-page letter to his former employer, vowing revenge. Uh-uh, don't write down your cr- If you're going to get revenge, don't write about getting revenge. Just quietly get revenge. A at least be quiet about it until the revenge is done, and then you can be like, Bitch, that was me, remember me? With the foot? And it'll be all the sweeter. In 1881, Herman Mudgett took his wife Clara and infant son Robert to Ann Arbor, where he continued his medical studies at the University of Michigan. Clara's family supplemented their living situation. 
The couple lived in a boarding house with the other students and their families. Clara found work as a dressmaker. Clara and Herman fought constantly, and first-hand accounts attest to the fact that Herman beat her rather savagely and rather frequently. Clara was seen on more than one occasion sporting black eyes. Domestic abuse got so bad that in 1883, Clara took her son Robert and just upped and left. Respect. I mean, of course, you should do this. This is people struggle to do this these days, like get out of abusive relationships. And in 1881, Jesus, I mean, good for you. Although they remained married, Clara had little to do with Herman for that point forward. Herman's fellow med students at the University of Michigan took note of the relish and enthusiasm with which he dissected bodies. <laughs> God damn, dude, that is a that is an indication of being a psycho right there. One student reports that Mudgett talked animatedly about picking apart cadavers and claimed that Mudgett once again decided to take a dead baby home in order to pick it apart. That is f up, my dude. What the f on another occasion, while in the dissection lab, Mudgett reportedly cut off the foot of a dead child, put it in his pocket, and took it away for unknown purposes. I don't even want to. I'm. I'm already. I don't want to think about what those unknown purposes are. I'm done. Let's move on. In 1882, Herman Mudgett teamed up with the anatomy lecturer, Dr. Herdman, to make trips to local cemeteries to find extra bodies for dissections. Oh my lord, the past. What are you up to? The grave robbing, quite common in those days, was done by doctors and medical students who referred to themselves rather grandly as resurrectionists. While the University of Michigan was regularly supplied in those days with the bodies of dead homeless people, apparently this was not enough to say to both Mudgett and Dr. Herdman's appetites. Apart from a macabre interest in dead bodies, it's likely that Mudgett joined Herdman on these expeditions for a little extra cash. It's like the problem is Dr. Herdman, I'm just assuming, it's like, we need these bodies to teach medicine. And Mudgett's just like, I'm gonna lick these later. <laughs> what am I? Herman was not popular at university. His grades were mediocre to poor. Many former students claimed, after he was charged with murder, of course, that they thought he was shifty and never trusted him. Apparently, Mudgett also exuded such a strong stench of body odor that it earned him the nickname Smegma, which is a gunk found under a man's unwashed foreskin, otherwise colloquially known as d cheese. Oh my god, dude, did you smell of d cheese? Ah! It is amazing how you remember that people smell. Like, I can remember a time, like, it's, smell is such a powerful memory thing. It's like, I've met people in my life and it's like, who have kind of smelled. And you're like, I remember that about you. There's hundreds of people I've met throughout my life who I've forgotten. But the ones who smell, they stay with you. Although I've never met someone It's like, is that dick cheese? <laughs> Date. Mudgett's medical reputation was thus, and also a smelly doctor. It's like, you go into the doctor's office, you just want it to smell like, you know, sterile. Even if there's like, even if it doesn't, isn't sterile, you just want it to have that smell, don't you? You want to go up to your doctor, you know what you want your doctor to smell of? Nothing. <laughs> Maybe like, uh, like uh, the cleaning fluid, something like that. Mudgett's medical reputation was quite different from the well-behaved little lad back in Gilmanton who was the apple of everybody's eye. It's quite clear that when Mudgett wasn't working a con, he would turn off his charm and could be quite the unpleasant, sullen, and taciturn fellow. That's another word I'd like to use more regularly, taciturn. While the male opinion of Mudgett in Ann Arbor was generally low, local female opinion of the budding Dr. Dick Cheese was a little more sympathetic. Really? Because I... I... <laughs> I just love his smell. Mudge's manners may have been something to be desired, but he was rather strapping and masculine with a big bushy moustache, which seemed to have an effect on some women. A big glorious beard. <laughs> However, at medical school, Mudgett did not have a reputation as a ladies' man, which is why people were all the more surprised to find out that Mudgett 
had a wife back home. They were even more surprised when Mudgett suddenly appeared in the middle of a local sex scandal, or rather, what passed for a sex scandal in Michigan in the Victorian era. Mudgett had been paying a lot of attention to a widow named Mrs. Fit, who was his landlady and also worked as a hairdresser in town. Evidently, Dr. Smegma's charms worked on the fair damsel and the two fell into bed together. Allegedly, as a pickup line, Mudgett had asked the widow to marry him. That's not a pickup line. <laughs> then she discovered a letter Mudgett had written to Clara, who was still his wife. Mrs. Fitch had been bedded and dishonored without anything to show for it. For our younger 21st century audience members, this meant that Herman Mudgett, quote, <laughs> tell you this, ran that house into the ground and didn't even put a ring on it. <laughs> David's knowledge of language in like mega slang <laughs> a paragraph he goes using what's that word taciturn a few things are more disgraceful for a victorian lady than getting her undercarriage serviced outside of the institution of marriage so mrs fitch sued herman mudgett for breach of promise to regain some semblance of her honor mudgett flatly denied that he had ever promised to marry the woman if her allegations were true as a punitive measure the university of michigan would not have allowed him to graduate they couldn't in good conscience allow such an immoral womanizing snake in the grass insert the medical field after all such at any rate were the morals of the time mudge's reputation as a sexually disinterested loner during his time in med school served him well most of his colleagues regarded mrs fitch's allegations as a joke the grave robbing professor dr herdman defended mudge before the faculty ultimately herman was acquitted however at his graduation ceremony in 1884 mudge walked up to dr herdman shook his hand and promptly told him mrs fitch's allegations were true <laughs> what just to be a dick He's like, congratulations, Dr. Holmes, you've just graduated. Oh, yeah, now that I've got this medical degree, it was all true, you idiot. What a dickhead. Herdman was shocked and affronted. He later went on to accuse Mudgett of trying to steal several valuables from his house. When Mudgett later wrote Herdman for a recommendation to become a medical missionary in Zuzuland, Herdman refused. <laughs> Shocking. For reasons best known to himself five months later, Mudgett ran an announcement in the local paper that he had indeed won an appointment to go to Africa, perhaps just despite his former mentor, perhaps just because that is what compulsive liars do. In reality, Mudgett just buggered off back to New Hampshire. Mudgett's Vaccine Mandate Herman Mudgett spent the summer of 1884 in New Hampshire with his parents. In the autumn, he moved to the town of Moores Fork in New York State, where he worked as a doctor and moonlighted as a science teacher at the local school. Holmes told everyone in Moores Forks that he was unmarried, and he proposed marriage to at least two women during his time there. Bit of an M.O. for you, is it, old Holmesy? One such woman had an ailing father who was Dr. Mudgett's patient. He died under suspicious circumstances. The body was scarcely cold when Mudgett proposed marriage to the woman who had just received... Guess what? A sizable inheritance. Shocking news. Neither marriage proposal went through. Much had also formed a friendship, heavy quotation marks there, with primary school teacher Minnie Everett and started taking quote-unquote French lessons from her in his spare time. After a few months, Everett broke off all association with Herman, claiming that quote, there is something lurking in that man's character that time will reveal. I do not like him. I firmly believe that he would commit murder. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she senses his dark soul. 
not even joking he has a terribly dark soul this statement is often quoted in biographies of dr dick cheese but i find it a bit too on the nose and prophetic in all likelihood the quote is apocryphal or at the very least said by everett in retrospect after his arrest in all probability mudgett's friendship with everett broke down for other reasons like a sullied romance or broken engagement for instance yeah i mean that just sounds more likely doesn't it the fact that she's like so it's like it's a bit too convenient and when things are so long ago uh, the facts get mixed up like the clubfoot baby it's like how it's just not it's just not great records Mudgett was also in the habit of screwing his patients. The townsfolk of Moore's Fork circulated a rumor that Mudgett was treating two women for quote-unquote organic trouble, for which he employed some quote-unquote carnal methods. <laughs> dude. Also, how is this? He's like a smelly dude with a mustache. It's like, is it? And he's got like, I mean, I don't want to make fun of people with like, you know, problems, but he's got, he's, he stinks. He's got a the mustache which apparently everyone finds super sexy and he's got the weird eye problem where he just looks off to the side like <laughs> is this guy such a catch everyone's like yeah you can fix my organic trouble with your carnal methods weird in addition to being a womanizer mudgett made himself quite unpopular in the town by being a deadbeat and a fraud he would constantly buy things on credit and then blow off his debts his landlord mr hayes loathed him for neglecting to pay his rent on his luxurious house it sometimes took weeks to even get a partial payment out of the guy despite the fact a doctor's wage was respectable and far above average mudgett had embarked on a career of criminal fraud an outbreak of smallpox broke out in new york state in 1885 oh no we're not gonna go here He's not going to, like, fake vaccine people, is he? Mudger got his hands on a case of vaccine and went about town, claiming that he was appointed by the government and said the vaccine was not only mandatory, but it would cost 25 cents per shot. That's roughly $7 per jab in today's money. While even with inflation, this may not sound like much, Mudgett vaccinated pretty much everyone in Moore's Fork, so it netted him about $1,000 or nearly $30,000 today. That would not fly in America today. <laughs> people are going to get COVID vaccines for free, they're like, nope! I guess back in the day people took this more seriously because they could see smallpox ravaging people whereas today people just die in hospitals and we don't see them maybe we should put them all out in public no let's not do that that would be weird but i mean it's like i don't want my kid to be vaccinated against polio it's like how about we take you to see some people who have polio and see how they feel about that shall we the townsfolk were not impressed to find out that mudgett had charged them for no reason and from that point forward he was persona non grata one day a man named mr steel arrived in mudgett's doctor's office still was accompanied by a dying soldier steel explains that the man was dying a premature death because a bullet had been lodged in his torso years ago and had not been removed however the u.s army doctors claimed the former soldier was dying of malaria instead those are two quite different problems <laughs> what this meant was that if the soldier died of malaria rather than a bullet the soldier's family would not get a pension payout ah really they take away his pension because he wasn't killed by like something from a war how about just novel idea here when people have a pension we pay it anyway i like that idea after the soldier died mudgett performed an autopsy on the man and discovered that the soldier had indeed died from an old bullet Mudgett even removed two of the shattered ribs from the corpse's proof. But Mudgett refused to turn the evidence over to Steele unless he was paid a substantial share of the army payout that was due to go to the soldier's grieving family. Steele told Mudgett to get stuffed and fortunately managed to prove his case to the U.S. Army by other means. Mudgett kept 
the soldier's ribs. Good for you telling him to f off. By the autumn of 1885, much had owed his landlord over $1,000 in rent, or over $30,000 today. Oh my god, landlord, what are you doing? Kick him out of the house. I know today it's like really hard. If someone like stops paying you rent, at least I think this is how it is in the U. I don't know how it is in America, but it's really hard to get rid of a tenant. And it makes sense because, I mean, sometimes it makes sense. If they owe like 30 grand, maybe it doesn't, and they're obvious fraudster. But when a landlord stops getting paid the landlord just loses money but the tenant loses their house and obviously there's a little bit of a power difference there but this is 1885 surely you'd just be like get the f out of my house and they'll be like there's tenant protection laws it's like it's 1885 mate what are you gonna do this is the past it's the worst remember now get out of my house or pay me my 30 grand so he promptly borrowed the money to purchase a train ticket to chicago and left town <laughs> You had the landlord comes knocking the door. Hey, mate, just to remind you, you owe me $30,000 in 2022 money. And is you're like, yeah, 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 no, I'm definitely going to pay that. Uh, listen, I've got to go see a friend in Chicago, which is really far away. Can you lend me the money for the train? Yeah, sure. No worries. We'll just add it to the 30 grand in 2022 dollars that you owe me. So, I mean, maybe this landlord deserved it. Mudgett drifted around Chicago in the winter of 1885, living large and quickly spending his money on women, sharp suits, luxury apartments, and expensive champagne. It was also around this time Mudgett started wearing his signature high crown bowler hat. When Mudgett was broke, he took a large wagon and headed east again. He got as far as Norristown, Pennsylvania. Running low on cash, Mudgett had to sell off all of his possessions, his wagon, and both of his horses in order to buy food. He burst at the local police station, saying that he was going to kill himself because he was starving. The police took pity on him, gave him a bit of grub, and then let him sleep in a prison cell while he found a job. I hope he, hope he became familiar with that prison cell, because I think that's where you're going to go. I mean, in the end. Well, we know it because he wrote his autobiography in prison, didn't we? Spoiler alert. Due to his medical experience, they found a job for him as an orderly in the local insane asylum. By all accounts, Mudgett did a decent job, except he was no longer calling himself Mudgett. He told the police and his employers that his name was Herman Howard and that he was from Texas and his father had been a colonel in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Mr. Howard, aka Mudgett, detested his work in the insane asylum. To be fair, that is not unreasonable. In the late 19th century, madhouses were extremely unpleasant places. They were little more than jails to lock up the mentally unwell, giving them little to no treatment, medication, or palliative care. They were underfunded, unsanitary, and the patients were kept in cruel and deprived conditions, yelling, babbling, fighting, and self-harming in an environment that was functionally a fresh pit of hell. I can imagine this must have been a disturbing life, even for a member of staff like Mudgett. Writing in his autobiography, Mudgett said, quote, So terrible was it that for years afterwards, even now sometimes, I see their faces in my sleep. He disappeared from the Norristown Asylum in early 1886 after working there for only two months. Yeah, it sounds like a bit too much like hard work for him, doesn't it? He'd probably just rather con or steal and stuff like that. That's more up his street. Or murder children. Also a possibility. The Birth of Dr. Holmes Mudgett arrived in the city of Minneapolis in the spring of 1886, where he began working as a clerk for a local pharmacist, Dr. Hyman. By this time, Mudgett was operating under the pseudonym of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, and so was born his most notorious alias, H. H. Holmes, the name by which he would be known to history. Although some early accounts say he chose the name from Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had not yet published the first of those stories. Instead, it would appear that Holmes chose the name entirely at random. While living in Minneapolis, H. H. 
Chomps met Myrta Belknap, a 24-year-old woman who worked as a clerk in a store that sold sheet music. Not long after, Holmes proposed marriage. Shocking! We were, oh, I, I, I knew exactly what was coming. <laughs> There's no record of this marriage on the books, and it's likely that Holmes confected the ceremony, making it seem more legal than it really was. Another good word there, confected. It's like makeup. One word instead of two. Mwah! Nevertheless, Holmes made a half-hearted attempt to secure a divorce from his legal wife, Clara. In those days, there was no such thing as a no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce. Does this mean like where people just want to split up because they're just not happy together anymore? It's weird that you couldn't do that. Someone had to make an error. It's like, we just don't like each other anymore. Isn't that okay? It's like, if it's someone you're not married to, you just break up. Even if it's a friend, you're like, well, you just don't hang out anymore, do you? But if you're married to them, you have some contracts you just got to keep together. That's some bullshit right there. Which is, uh, obviously we changed. Because now people get divorced all the time. And it's awesome! I mean... <laughs> it would be better if everyone just lived happily ever after. But obviously that's not a reality. So, when Holmes filed these papers, he claimed that Clara had been sleeping with a man named J.M. Downer while the married couple lived together in Ann Arbor in 1883. So not only... There's no fault divorces, so he just has to trash his wife's reputation. I mean, this guy was a real jerk. When Holmes found out the divorce papers says, he promptly threw Clara out and took on sole custody of their son, Robert. In actual fact, Clara had taken Robert when she walked out on Holmes in 1883 after years of domestic abuse. For three years, Clara had been living with Robert back in New Hampshire, making a living as a dressmaker. Holmes was not part of their lives. In fact, by the time Holmes married Marta Belknap, he had largely cut off contact with his mother and father as well. After a few years of silence, the Mudgett family has pretty much given him up for dead. Nothing came of the divorce proceedings, which stalled because no witness could support Holmes's claim of adultery. And it's highly likely that this man, J.M. Downer, with whom Clara was allegedly sleeping, did not exist. Most absurdly, Clara was never informed of the divorce lawsuit at all. In 18 yeah, but this was the past. I mean, you could go somewhere else and the paperwork doesn't track and, I don't know, it just gets lost. It's back in the day there weren't big centralized databases allowing everyone to know what's going on all the time. Or Facebook. In May 1886, Holmes and Murta moved to Chicago. On July the 15th, he passed a three-day exam to get a pharmacy license in order to work at a drugstore. He began working at a local pharmacy owned by Dr. Elizabeth Holton, a fellow medical grad from the University of Michigan that same month. When Holton fell pregnant with her second daughter in early 1887, she sold the drugstore to Holmes. And while the compulsive liar delayed paying for a while, Holton actually managed to get him to cough up without too much difficulty or resorting to a lawsuit. Kind of a rarity in today's story. He actually paid for something. At the beginning of 1887, Holmes also purchased a vacant lot across the street. This 63rd Street location in Chicago, in the Chicago suburb of Englewood was the future site of his notorious murder castle. Over the course of 1887, Holmes took out loans and sought investors for the building, which was to house shops on the first floor, rented apartments on the second floor, and a hotel on the third floor. He's seeking out investors. Again, this is like, if, any, if there was any sort of paper trail today, people were like, wait... Isn't this the guy who keeps running away and changing his name because he can't, can't pay his debts? But in the past, people were like, yeah, sure, I'll give you some more money, old Holmesy. No worries. Holmes chose a good time to get involved in real estate as the population of Englewood exploded from just 2,000 people in 1880 to 50,000 in 1890 due to the suburb's absorption into the wider city of Chicago. Construction of the castle began in August 1887. The first and second floors were in operation within months, and Holmes moved into one of the apartments with his second wife, Murta, 
in early 1888. Holmes also set up another drugstore on the first floor, selling the Holton business he'd purchased across the street. The hotel on the first floor wouldn't be finished for another five years. After construction was underway, Holmes transferred ownership of the property to his wife, Murta, and then to Murta's mother, Lucy, so Holmes could avoid having the building repossessed when creditors and investors came looking for him for the money. I don't think it works like that. At least it doesn't anymore. It's like, no, no, no. I used all of your investor money to buy this object. And then I gave the object to someone else. So it's now their object. And they just and that person happens to be legally my, my wife. So what's half of hers is mine. I'm pretty sure the investors could be like, we're taking that back. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like this. <laughs> you go to the bank. You take out a mortgage to buy a house. You give the house to your wife. And you're like, what are you going to do about it, bank? It's like, well, we're going to sue you. I'm bankrupt. And then your wife keeps the house and you live in it. That that sh doesn't happen. It would it doesn't work like that. Indeed, Holmes never paid eight a, a, a iron and steel a dime for the materials used to construct the building, nor did he pay the architect who designed the damn thing. When Aidan Ryan and Steele sued Holmes in 1888, he claimed he was not liable since he was not the property's owner. His mother-in-law was when that didn't shake off the lawsuit. Good, as expected. Holmes claimed that one of the steel beams Aetna provider was too short, thus negating the entire contract. Again, your understanding of the law is not very good. This was just one of dozens of lawsuits levied against Holmes in the building, with numerous pissed-off investors, co-owners, construction workers, and furniture manufacturers looking for their money. The castle had a large hidden compartment between the first and second floors over the top of the drugstore, where Holmes's employees sometimes slept overnight. <laughs> okay, the past. Where are you sleeping? Just at work, just on the floor. The castle also had a hidden staircase that could be accessed from a trapdoor in the bathroom on the second floor. There were also numerous hidden compartments scattered all over the building, where Holmes would hide furniture and various other items from repo men who came to take them once Holmes inevitably failed to pay for them. The most famous story of this kind was when a repo man came to possess a large safe that Holmes had bought on credit. When the men arrived, Holmes said, Go ahead and take the safe, but I warn you not to damage the building. The problem was there was no way to remove the safe without tearing down the walls in which it had been embedded. The Reaper men were forced to leave it, and the safe company had to write it off as a bad debt. <laughs> this is like the stupidest ripoff ever. <laughs> Holmes's most common swindle was to buy goods on credit, sell them for cash, and not pay back the creditors. Holmes also really liked cheating bike sellers. He'd rent a bike or two from a store, sell them, and not return them. Evidently, Holmes also bought the same thing with stores that sold collectible wind-up music boxes, which was something of a fad at the time. From 1886 to 1894, over 60 lawsuits were in eight years. 60 lawsuits were opened against H.H. Holmes. Some of them were the simple act of borrowing $50 and not paying it back. A more extreme lawsuit was levied against him by a man named Herman Haff for $10,000. Or that's a lot of money in today's money. $315,000 in today's money. Holmes allegedly leading the man up the primrose path with various investments in real estate and agriculture. Dude. That is savage. In 1887, Holmes began advertising the sale of high-quality mineral water that was healthier than tap water and had various healing properties. Let me guess, it's just tap water. Holmes claimed he had access to this water via a quote, artisan well. Holmes sold bottles of the stuff which had a strange bluish color. In reality, Holmes admittedly tapped into the water mains of the castle, stealing from the water company without paying for it. The water itself was discolored by a cloud of millions of copper particles floating in it, which had chipped off from the building's cheap plumbing. Far from being a healthy mineral water, if you drank too much of it, you'd wind up with serrated gut and permanent damage to your kidneys and liver. Holy sh**. 
So now are you selling tap water? Which uh, there was a famous, I made a video about it, a famous story of Coca-Cola who launched Dasani water in the UK. And apparently bottled water in the US is often just like purified tap water or whatever. But in Europe, it's generally mineral water, like it comes from like springs and shit. And Coca-Cola are like, yeah, we'll launch Dasani water, which is just, you know, purified tap water in the UK. And people were like, wait, we're having none of this. It comes from like a tap in Swindon. What are you talking about? And then they were like, well, it's purified. And then people did tests. and It was like less pure than the water that comes out of the tap. And it's like, okay, don't don't try that. But on the plus side, at least it didn't ruin your liver. <laughs> Holmes also claimed he had invented a gas generator that could take a simple tank of water and turn it into natural gas, which could be then used to fuel lamps, machines, furnaces and buildings. He solved the energy crisis. Holmes built a giant iron contraption in the basement of the castle and gave public demonstrations where he threw in a variety of chemicals which produced colorful wisps of smoke and strange smells. And indeed, the generator produced natural gas. So convincing was this display that the local gas company came to investigate it and initially offered Holmes $2,500 or $78,000 today for his invention. Yo. Yo, yo, yo. If I'm a gas company and someone shows me this invention, it is worth a hell of a lot more than $78,000. I'll be like, I will give you a billion dollars for it. You cannot tell anyone, and then I will have you killed, and then I will destroy the invention. <laughs> or I will keep it in the company basement, and we will no longer purchase Russian gas. We will just use this magical box. In reality, Holmes had secretly connected his generator to the castle's own gas pipes in order to produce the final product. Once the gas company's investigator figured this out, the deal was called off. Shocking. In 1890, he set up the Warner Ga Glass Bending Company. Oh, dude, what are you up to? He claimed that he had been to a glass factory in New Jersey and had ferreted out their secret patented way of bending glass. Curved glass might not sound like anything special today, but back then it was relatively new. Again, Holmes built an elaborate furnace in the basement of the castle and gave public demonstrations. No one ever saw him bend glass in person, but one night he staged a scene wrapping a tiny amount of glass around a metal bar next to the furnace. The next morning, he called two drugstore employees downstairs who saw the glass and were duly conscripted to tell all and sundry about it. Holmes promptly conned dozens of investors for several thousand dollars without producing anything for sale. In 1891, Holmes bought into the ABC Copier Company, purchasing 50% of the shares for $9,000 or $285,000 in today's money. He has conned a lot of money from a lot of people to be able to purchase that. Like, where did he get nearly 300 grand from? I mean, cons, but were they so successful? He seems a bit shit at cons. Or rather, he got the shares but never paid any money for them. Of course he didn't. Holmes said he would pay the amount in cash once a real estate deal of his went through. But then he showed up with a promissory note saying that he'd pay the amount in one year, and he never did. The ABC Copier Company used a newly invented technology that mixed gelatin, glycerin, and water together to produce copies of books and drawings. Unusually for one of Holmes's wheezes, the technology was actually legit. But when Holmes took charge of the company, he did not manufacture or sell very many copy machines. Yeah, why would he? It's not what that. It's not they invented a revolutionary device. Except they did. This is your one legit business that you stole. Instead, he mostly used the company to defraud investors out of their money and sold off the territorial rights to sell the copying machines to other salesmen. A fellow could pay $5,000 or $157,000 in today's money for the exclusive rights to sell the copy machines in a particular U.S. state. However, if you purchase the exclusive rights to sell the machine in, say, Ohio, you could be certain that H.H. Holmes had sold off those same rights to half a dozen other men in Ohio as well. Oh my god. That must have made him a lot of money. If he's making 157 grand in today's money per state, and he's selling them to many many states per person, how many, there's like 50 states, right? So how many? That's a lot. I mean, there's not going to be 50 states back then, but it's still a lot of money, okay? 
Through these various schemes and more legitimate forms of revenue, Holmes was grossing an estimated average of $48,000 a year, or $1.5 million annually. While sitting in a jail cell in 1895, Holmes himself claimed that he was pulling in $300,000 or $9.5 million a year. Yeah, it sounds like you made that one up, didn't you? But I think we could take the latter figure with a big, massive grain of salt. Yes. Death comes to Englewood. On July the 4th, 1889, Myrta gave birth to a daughter, Lucy Theodate Holmes. The first girl's first name was taken from Holmes's mother-in-law and a middle name from his own mother. But back in New Hampshire, Theodate Mudgett had no idea whether her son was still alive, didn't know he was married, and the old woman didn't know she had a granddaughter for another six years. She only discovered that bit of news around the same time. She found out her son was a murderer. <laughs> You'd be like, listen, old lady, we got some good news and some bad news. Do you want, which one do you want first? <laughs> that your son's a murderer, but he had a daughter. <laughs> On April the 18th, 1891, John de Bruel stepped off the train at the station right outside the castle on 63rd Street. De Bruyne was an investor in the castle and part owner of the building, who, like many investors, was in a protracted legal dispute with Holmes over thousands of dollars in revenues and investment returns that de Bruyne was owed. Suddenly, right in near the drugstore, de Bruyne collapsed on the sidewalk and began having a likely epileptic fit. Holmes dashed out of the drugstore ostensibly to assist the convulsing man. And eyewitness states that upon reaching Dr. Bruyne, Holmes poured a vial of dark liquid down his throat. Moments later, the man was dead. That is extremely suspicious. The next two deaths at the castle, oh, just brush that aside, it's cool, no worries, were, put to put it lightly, troubling. Back in September 1889, shortly after the birth of Holmes's daughter, a man named Ned Connor, a jeweler from out of state, his 33-year-old wife Julia and their four-year-old daughter Pearl, moved into an apartment at the castle. Ned began working at the jewelry counter at the drugstore. Julia and Ned fought bitterly and constantly at one point, with Julia threatening to take poison and kill herself. Meanwhile, Holmes got Julia a job working as a cashier in the drug drugstore and began having an affair with her almost immediately. In January 1890, Holmes convinced Ned to buy his drugstore, having cooked the books and inflated the store's revenue to look more profitable than they really were. Ammo <laughs> again. Holmes also persuaded Ned to take out a bunch of loans and hand the money to him, which the conman promised to swiftly repay. And shockingly, he never did. In the meantime, Ned and Julia filed for divorce. In March 1890, Ned informed Holmes that he was divorcing his wife and leaving Chicago and that he'd like to sell the drugstore back to Holmes since it wasn't very profitable. Holmes agreed to buy it back at a cutthroat price. Julia stayed on in Chicago working at the drugstore and continuing to sleep with Holmes. He even convinced Julia to pay him $1,942 or $61,000 in today's money for her to become a part owner of the drugstore, which the now divorced drugstore cashier had agreed to pay in installments. Naturally, the story of becoming part owner was a lie and Julia was never legally made any such thing on paper this i mean he is he's quite a good con man like at first he does didn't seem very good at it but now he's really raking in the money like his con man game improved which you'd expect it to when you practice at something Julia and Holmes kept up their affair through 1890 and 1891, with Holmes feigning a paternal interest in Julia's five-year-old daughter, Pearl, whom Holmes allowed to play out in the streets of Chicago until well after dark. That seems like good parenting right there. In 1891, Holmes sold the drugstore again, this time to a fellow named A.L. Jones. Before the sale went through, though, Holmes sold most of the store's remaining stock to himself, hid it upstairs in the castle before selling it off privately behind Jones's back. Holmes retained ownership of the castle, or rather, 
his mother-in-law did. As an aside, in early 1891, H.H. Holmes was trying to have sex with Ned Connor's 20-year-old sister, Gertrude Connor, who had moved into Chicago from Iowa. But Gertie wasn't having any of it, and she rebuffed him, probably because he smelled bad, had a weird mustache, had the squinty eye. Well, I don't understand why this guy's so, like, he's so successful. Like at conning people, he looks weird, he smells bad. I'd be like, oh, dude, go away. And it's also, to, women love him. <laughs> it's weird. Gertie moved back to Iowa to look after her dying mother. In July, it was actually Gertie herself who wound up dying a premature death from heart disease. According to multiple accounts, Holmes thought that this was hilarious. Holy sh**. <laughs> Dude, your sense of humor needs to work, my guy. Again, but it's like, this, it makes him sound so unattractive. Like, humor's so important. It's such a nice thing. And then this guy's just like, he's weird. It's creepy. In September 1891, Holmes sued Julia for the remainder of the money she owed him for a false share of the drugstore business. Holmes assured Julia that the lawsuit was merely a formality, but Julia wasn't pleased and became increasingly distressed. She started to express her doubts about Holmes to various friends and acquaintances. On Christmas Eve 1891, Julia helped some neighbors set up a Christmas tree in their apartment. She arranged to meet them the next day and never showed up. Uh-oh. Another resident in the building, Mrs. Crow, said that she thought she'd seen Julia heading out on Christmas morning. And that was the last time anyone reported seeing Julia or Pearl Connor alive. Uh-oh. Julia and Pearl were expected in Davenport, Iowa on December the 31st to attend the wedding of Julia's sister. They never showed up. Julia's apartment remained empty for five months. In May 1892, Holmes rented out the place to the Doyle family. When Holmes was showing Mrs. Doyle the place, the woman noted that the dining room table still had dirty plates in it. She also noticed the night clothing of a woman and a small girl on the floor. The bedsheets were in a disarray and had not been made. Mrs. Doyle also saw a doll known to be Pearl's. Holmes quickly kicked the doll under the bed. On top of the dresser, Mrs. Doyle saw a bunch of women's cosmetics. The drawers were still full of clothes. <laughs> Come around this house if you want to move in, just not tidying up. It's amazing. The number of houses I've looked at, like, you know, for renting or buying stuff, and you just go and it's like, you couldn't, you're trying to sell your house and you couldn't have tidied up just a little bit. Or you're trying to rent this place, and you couldn't have phoned up the tenants to be like, "Yo, less lo less uh, less dishes in the sink, guys," because you're like, "This is horrible. I don't want to live here." At this point, a slightly uneasy Mrs. Doyle inquired after the previous tenant. Holmes told her Julia had left suddenly to stay with a dying sister in Davenport, Iowa. Mrs. Doyle immediately thought to herself that no woman would leave for a trip. However, suddenly, without taking at least a few of the toiletries which I saw on the dresser. Throughout 1892, Holmes continued to talk about Julia and Pearl as if they were still alive and even feigned attempts to locate them once it was clear they were missing. On October, In October 1892, Holmes wrote Julia's mother asking her whereabouts. The mother wrote back saying that she did not even know Julia was missing and now she was extremely worried and upset. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Oh, she's buried in the walls or in the basement or wherever. Oh, god damn. Ned Connor, the ex-husband, didn't really care about Julia's disappearance or ask about his daughter Pearl. He merely assumed that a vindictive person like Julia was trying to keep him from seeing the little girl. That's sad. Holmes admitted in confidence to his lawyer that he had killed Julia Connor while he was performing an illegal abortion on her. He did not go into detail about why he also killed Julia's daughter Pearl. Dude, that is f***ed up. It's like, how did she like... I killed her when she was having an illegal abortion. And what about daughter, though? Oh, yeah, I killed, I killed her, too. Just, you know. <laughs> ah, dude. 
Either the abortion story is true and Holmes then murdered Pearl because she could incriminate him, or else Holmes murdered both Julia and Pearl simultaneously because his relationship with Julia had gone sour, or she threatened to expose his crimes. I absolutely think it's that. I don't think there was any illegal abortion. I just think he murdered them because he's a f***ing sicko. According to Holmes's later MO, he likely poisoned the mother and daughter, stripped them naked, dismembered and burned the bodies before disposing of the remains. This accords with Julia and Pearl's bedclothing being seen on the floor of their apartment and the rest of their clothes being in drawers. This also accords with the fact that years later, when police were digging up the basement of the castle, they found the charred bones of a girl, the limbs, head and torso broken into segments, estimated to be between the ages of 6 and 10. Pearl Connor would have been six at the time of her death. In May 1982, five months after the disappearance of Julia and Pearl Connor, a young blonde woman by the name of Emmeline Sagrand began working for Dr. H. H. Holmes, Chicago's foremost entrepreneur and real estate developer, at his office at the castle. Not long afterwards, Emmeline began having an affair with Holmes. How can the... The women can't resist him and his stinky body. She did not live at the castle, but rented a series of flats down the street, never staying in one place for too long at Holmes's instruction. One of Emmeline's landladies commented that she was often upset in the evening, staying out to quite late. Emmeline replied that a gentleman friend of hers named Mr. Belknap would take her out in his carriage. Belknap was the maiden name of Holmes's wife, Myrta, who at this point was living in the Chicago suburb of Wilmette with her daughter Lucy, and also Holmes when he wasn't working or sleeping at the castle. Okay, dude, what the f***? According to witnesses, Emmeline Sagrand was infatuated with Mr. Belknap, would talk about him endlessly, and speak of how he was always buying her flowers and little presents, or taking her to the theatre, or going with her on scenic bike rides. Holmes, in turn, told some people that Emmeline was his cousin. He and Emmeline spent most days in each other's company, eating all their meals together in Holmes's office, which they had sent up from a restaurant, on the first floor of the castle. In October 1892, Emmeline's actual cousin, a dentist named B.J. Sagrand, came to visit her. Emmeline told the dentist of her impending marriage to one Mr. Phelps, another pseudonym used by H.H. H. Holmes. Emmeline said they'd been taking music lessons together. Emmeline's story about being on the verge of marrying someone seems genuine. In a tale as old as time, it would appear that Holmes had told her that he intended to divorce Murta and settle down with her instead. Soon after ever, it appears that Emmeline began to have a change of heart. It must become clear at some point that Holmes had no intention of divorcing his wife. Also, people started to warn her about Holmes being a womanizer and a trickster. Emmeline, on her part, seemed to take heed and regularly went out of her way, asking people what they thought of Holmes. Meanwhile, she was rumored to be pregnant with Holmes's child. On December the 6th, 1892, Emmeline told a friend that she was going to spend Christmas with her family in Lafayette, Indiana. Her friend chided her not to leave Chicago permanently because, quote, Dr. Holmes could never get along without you. After a moment's reflection, Emmeline said quietly, but with conviction, he could if he had to. This was the last time that anyone saw her. Okay, so, so she could have equally actually just left, or she could have been totally buried in his basement. Brilliant. On December the 7th, 1892, H.H. Holmes printed some wedding announcement cards, which proclaimed Emmeline Sagrand had married a Robert Phelps. He then sent them to Emmeline's friends and family, including the girl's parents. Nobody had any idea who this Phelps fellow really was. When some of them asked Holmes, he replied, Oh, he's a fellow Miss Sagrand's met somewhere. I don't know anything about him except that he is a traveling man. On December the 8th, 1892, Holmes printed a wedding announcement in a Lafayette newspaper, again announcing Emmeline's marriage to this Robert Phelps. In one passage, why is this guy up to you? Why is this why is the trick he's trying to play here? In one passage of the announcement, Emmeline's move to Chicago is described as where she met her fate. This was meant to be reference to Emmeline meeting her husband. Oh my god, he no, he means like fate, like she's dead. 
But one suspects Holmes took some sick pleasure at the phrase's double meaning. Emmeline indeed had come to Chicago and met her fate. Dude, don't, don't subtly hint at your crimes. Bad idea. Don't do it. Don't ever subtly hint at your crimes. Just don't mention your crimes. When Emmeline's panic-stricken father wrote H.H. H. Holmes looking for his daughter, Holmes told him that Emmeline and Phelps had decided to move to England. A few months later, Emmeline's mother received a trunk full of her daughter's clothing with a typewritten note saying that Phelps had had enough money to buy her new clothes and she was jetting off to a new life in Europe. Why would you send the clothes back? Just get rid of the clothes. Why would you do that? It's just asking for trouble. When Emmeline's mother opened the trunk, she saw that her daughter's clothing had just been tossed carelessly inside. There is no record of any Robert Phelps of this description ever existing, or record of a Phelps migrating from Chicago to England with Emmeline, or to any other European country for that matter. Emmeline Segrand's body was never found. It was likely dismembered, cremated, and scattered like all the others. The Devil in the White City as 1893 approached, Chicago citizens started to get excited about the World's Fair. World's Fairs were cool. I, I think there are still World's Fairs today, but they're not as cool as they used to be. Like whenever I make videos like this, it's like there's a World's Fair. They have all like these companies making technology that they think will be the future. Stuff comes from all around the world. I think World's Fairs were awesome. I don't know why they stopped being such a cool thing. I think there was one, like, someone... I made a video and I said the same thing. And someone was like, oh, they do have a World's Fair. There's one, like, coming up in... Dubai or some shit like that. And I looked at it, it just seemed to be like a bunch of corporate shilling. Like, not like cool corporate shilling. It's not like, you know, General Electric's showing up there with like, you know, back in the day, a color television. And you're like, holy shit, it's in color. It just seemed to be kind of just lame companies with lame things. I was like, ah, this isn't as cool as World's Fairs in the past. Six months of exhibitions and entertainments held between May and October of that year. H.H. H. Holmes was no exception. He rapidly developed the third floor of the castle into a hotel to capture the bump in tourism. However, it seems Holmes had no real intention of having guests stay there. He just used the addition of a hotel to guzzle money from unwitting investors. Of course he did. Holmes bought furniture for the hotel rooms on credit and sold it without repaying. He used the cheapest materials and construction methods. One site inspector actually punctured a hole in the floor just by walking on it. Holmes sent him a bill for $75. Ultimately, the plan was to make thousands in insurance payouts by burning the whole thing down. Oh, that definitely sounds like, well, I mean, this guy's no, you know, <laughs> it's a crime. This guy does crimes. How is he not in prison? Using different pseudonyms, Holmes took out insurance policies with three separate companies in October and November of 1892. The payout ran to $100,000 or $3.5 million today. Dude, could you make it look more like you're doing an insurance scam? Why would random people take out, like, if you're not the owner of the property? Like, I don't think some random Joe Bloggs can go and take out an insurance property on my house burning down. That would be insane and, like, really set a bad precedent. So how is that allowed? The design of the third floor hotel was strange. Some closets had two doors, allowing someone from the adjoining room to sneak into the closet and burst into the room. The walls had hidden sliding panels. The doors to some rooms were covered with wallpaper so that stolen goods could be concealed in them. In January 1893, H.H. Holmes hired Minnie Williams as secretary and stenographer. Let me guess, they start sleeping together. Minnie was 28 years old and had been orphaned along with her siblings in childhood. As the eldest of her siblings, in 1870, Minnie inherited a large ranch from her uncle, valued at $10,000 or $342,000 in today's money, in Fort Worth, Texas. Minnie was described <laughs> they could buy a large ranch for $342,000. Seems really cheap. Minnie was described as a brilliant conversationalist, a good musician, and graceful and elegant, but not beautiful. She was also described as standoffish around boys, and to use the phrase of the time, 
a man-hater, which was sometimes used by Victorians as code for lesbian. Minnie left Texas, studying to become an expert in elocution at the Boston Conservatory from 1886 to 1890. Elocution is the study of formal pronunciation and grammar, something important for society ladies at the time. During her stay in the North, Minnie made the acquaintance of H. H. Holmes, and allegedly even had a photograph taken with him. Wait, so she starts working for him and he, he doesn't sleep with her? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Normally he does that. In 1891, Minnie mortgaged her Fort Worth property for $6,000, I wonder whose idea that was, and used the money to start a theatrical company. It quickly went bankrupt. Minnie then spent a couple of years traveling the U.S. as an actress. Oh wait, it wasn't his idea. I'm so off base with all of this. I was like, why isn't he sleeping with her? Isn't he the one who's told her to mortgage this property and then he's taken all the money? No! Rumours that the Minnie fancied herself the vaudeville version of Meryl Streep, but in reality was not very good. In January 1893, she gave up on her acting dream and began to work for Holmes in Chicago. It was at this time that Minnie began to have an affair. Ah, uh, ah, uh, spoke too soon. She had an affair with H. H. Holmes. This may sound strange since Minnie was a rumoured lesbian, but it was the 19th century, and marriage to a wealthy doctor turned real estate mogul offered Minnie an escape from the humdrum life as a penniless secretary. Surely you go to work there. If you, he had 60 lawsuits in like eight years, he owes everyone money, he's conning people, he's trying to rip off an insurance company. Surely at some point you're working there, and by the time the like 19th bill collector has come that morning, you're like, maybe he's not as successful as I think he is. I guess not. Like, how? Holmes, of course, was still married to Murcher at the time, along with, lest we forget, Clara Mudgett back in New Hampshire. Wait, I thought they got divorced with the, with the, like, he said she was having an affair or she left or something. Oh, who knows? This guy's just full of lies. In spring of 1893, Minnie wrote to her sister, Nanny, saying she'd become engaged to a Dr. Harry Gordon. Minnie knew Holmes's real name, but used an alias when discussing him in order to prevent a scandal from breaking out. Minnie evidently expected Holmes to divorce Murta and thrown his lot with her instead. In March 1893, Minnie sold a portion of her ranch in Fort Worth for $2,528, that's $86,000 today, and passed the money to Holmes. Again, spoke too soon. You knew he was getting his money on that ranch, didn't his hands on that ranch money, didn't you? It just had to happen. He also took out a huge loan in Minnie's name. Minnie later signed over the deed to her property for home two homes for one dollar. This how? How? He used the alias Alexander Bond. On June the 7th, Holmes and Minnie moved into an apartment on Wrightwood Avenue in Lincoln Park, registered as Mr. and Mrs. Gordon. There's no record of a wedding. Around the same time, Minnie's sister Nanny came to stay with them and enjoy the World's Fair. In a letter to their aunt Lucy in Mississippi, dated July the 4th, 1893, Nanny Williams said she was enjoying herself in Chicago and that she liked Dr. Gordon very much. She told her aunt that tomorrow they'd be going to Milwaukee, then to Maine by way of the St. Lawrence River. Then they would go to New York, where Nanny would look into studying art. Then they planned to sail to Germany by way of London and Paris. Nanny Williams said, If I like it there, I will stay and study art. If not, I will return to New York in time to make you a visit before beginning my work studying there. Brother Harry says, You never trouble any more about me, financially or otherwise, and his sister will see to me. I hope our hard days are over. End quote. There is some implication that Holmes actually forged this letter, but it's also possible that... He convinced Nanny into thinking the road trip plans were legitimate. The last time anyone saw Minnie and Nanny Williams alive was on July the 5th, 1893. The method of murder is unknown, but given Holmes's M.O., the sisters were likely poisoned, dismembered, cremated, and then scattered. Their remains were never found. Joseph Oka, landlord at the Wrightwood Apartments, saw the two sisters walking down Seminary Avenue in the morning. Holmes murdered both of them that night. 
On July the 6th, several property transactions were made in Minnie's name. The same day, Holmes took out another loan in Minnie's name for $6,250, $214,000 today. How is he not like, how are they not like looking at this? Like, his, they, these kid, these people disappear and die, and he's got all this money from them, and the police are like, seems fine. <laughs> how? On July the 7th, Joseph Oka found that the Wrightwood apartments had been vacated, showing signs of a hasty exit. A steamer trunk full of Nanny Williams's clothing was abandoned at a Chicago shipping depot, and it was not claimed for more than a year until the police came sniffing around. After the murder, Holmes moved Murta, his daughter Lucy, and his mother-in-law into the house he'd built in the Chicago suburb of Wilmette. This house was actually registered in the name of Minnie Williams. Murta had no idea she was living in a house owned by her husband's slain former mistress good lord a month after the double murder Holmes met his next target at the world's fair ms georgiana yoke the infernal castle as the chicago world's fair carried on from the first of may to october the 30th the hotel at the castle continued to not do business. The hotel was not listed in travel literature. The rooms were constructed so shoddily that they were barely habitable. There was no front desk, no lobby, no nightly rate. Then on August the 13th, 1893, a fire broke out at the Castle Hotel. Oh my god, how convenient! <laughs> let me guess, let me guess, it's overinsured! The day before, Holmes had cleared all the furniture, books, papers, and valuables from the third floor. It also removed the doorknobs and locks, a $75 porcelain tub, and all the marble sink basins. Holmes didn't even bother to try and make the fire look accidental. He merely claimed the firebug must have snuck in and deliberately set fire to the building. As successful as Holmes had been as a con man, defrauding three insurance companies all at once proved to be a bridge too far. Good! Finally! All three companies came down on Holmes like a ton of bricks and placed him under harsh scrutiny and 24-hour investigation. They threatened to arrest him for fraud. Holmes went into hiding, moving quietly between rented apartments and several hotels. He wore fake beards and elaborate disguises. As far as we know, Holmes did not collect a cent of the insurance money. In autumn of 1893, Holmes was living in an apartment when a man named Ben Piazzol, his five children, and a woman who identified herself as Minnie Williams, but who in fact was Piazzol's wife, Carrie. The purpose of this ruse was to convince people that Minnie was still alive, since her name was on several important business documents related to the fraud investigation. How sometimes Julia Connor was still being sued by Holmes's creditors, despite the fact that she had been dead for two years. Oh my god, this guy's created so much paperwork, they just can't keep track. There's too many lawsuits against him. It's like, you know, that Simpsons where Mr. Burns is so sick that all of the diseases can't get through that door at once, so they all get stuck. This is like Holmes with lawsuits. He's got so many lawsuits, they're all just like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Must be innocent. In January 1894, the Chicago police laid a trap for Holmes, one of three insurance companies, sent a telegram to the fake address of one of Holmes's aliases, saying that the insurance payout was approved and ready for pickup. Holmes showed up the next day and was confronted by the police. <laughs> this is the easiest trick ever. Holmes immediately confessed that he had been using an alias when he took out the insurance policy on the hotel, but Holmes knew that in order for to be prosecuted for arson, charges need to be laid within one year of the event, so Holmes was determined to play for time and skipped out. <laughs> really? One? The limit on arson is a year? That seems low? <laughs> that seems very low? 
H.H. H. Holmes immediately fled for Denver, where he planned to sue a Colorado company for the wrongful death of Minnie Williams's brother, Baldwin. Naturally, Holmes pretended that Minnie was still alive and that he represented her interests. Holmes used the alias Mr. Howard and nod to the famous outlaw Jesse James, who had also used that alias. While in Denver, he got married for the fourth time. Hey, why not? Why not? Let's get some money out of someone new. And apparently, again, the smegma dude irresistible to the ladies. Georgina Yoke was 25 years old, tall, blonde, and considered ridiculously beautiful, except for the fact that she had somewhat oversized dinner plate blue eyes that some witnesses, journalists, and dime novel men went so far to describe as deformities. Yes, big eyes, how hideous. She was reputedly very charismatic and would win over pretty much anyone she met. A total Stacy. What is this? Is this. I think this is. Isn't this. Aust uh, David lives in Australia. I think this is. Australian slang. There's another Stacy and someone. I've had. It doesn't matter. According to acquaintances, Georgina also had a reputation for sleeping around. She had previously taught at a primary school in Indiana and had famously saved the kids from a fire before rushing back into the school to save the class dictionary. All right. Then Georgina abruptly left teaching and went to Chicago in 1893, where she worked at a department store, then a cloakroom, then another store, before running into homes at the World's Fair. I just don't get it. Is Holmes like, is he so handsome that people can overlook his smelliness? Weird. And is also just con man and murderous nature? The fact that people hang around with him say that he's weird? The con man told Regina that his name was H.H. H. Holmes, but that he inherited in property from his uncle in Fort Worth, Texas, on the strange condition that he changed his name to Henry Mansfield Howard. Georgina bought this bullshit explanation while she might be charming and she might be beautiful, but she sure is gullible. Holmes told Georgina not to turn up at the castle since he was being stalked by Murta, who he said was his ex-lover rather than a wife, and given Holmes' marriage to Murta was almost certainly a sham one, well, he's kind of telling the truth. As for their relationship, it would appear that Georgina idolized Holmes and followed him rounds like a puppy dog. Holmes seems to have been genuinely smitten with Georgina as well, or at least as far as a psychopath who discards women like tissue paper is capable of forming an attachment to anyone. They were married in Denver on January the 17th, 1894, with a witness being Carrie Piazzol, and she signed her name under the alias Minnie Williams. After ripping off the Colorado Mining Company for a settlement of $10,000, $342,000 today, Holmes, Georgina, and Carrie headed to Fort Worth, Texas. Just like, just slide another enormous successful con into there. There they mess up with Benjamin Piazzol, who did not know he was living on borrowed time. A chloroform cocktail. Benjamin Piazzol was, for all intents and purposes, Holmes's creature. A low-rent alcoholic Dr. Watson, a two-bit con man and an incompetent criminal. He was also, to his eternal credit, not a psychopath. And he loved his family. At the time of his death, Piazzol was 38 years old. He married his wife Carrie in 1878 and they had five kids together. Jeanette, always called Dessie, was 15 at the time of their death. Alice was 14, Nellie was 12, Howard was 8, and the last boy, Wharton, was only a baby. Benjamin Piazzol had been described as awkward, scrawny, with a peach fuzz moustache. He was an alcoholic and multiple run-ins with the law. He first came to Chicago in 1888 when he was fleeing a warrant for his arrest in Galveston, Illinois. In 1890, Piazzol invented a new kind of coal bin and rented out office space in the same building as Holmes's fraudulent Warner Glass Bending Company. So this guy, he's got so much. How does he even keep up? How does he even keep track with all of the cons? 
He must be writing them all down in some sort of book, which he shouldn't be doing because you don't write down your crimes. Rule number one. It was there they met. Piezol began doing odd jobs for Holmes and quickly became his bagman. Piezol's name first appears on paperwork for the ABC Copier Company in 1893. Is the bagman the guy who, like, is that the phrase for, like, someone who's left holding the bag? Like, bagman sounds like, in my mind, it was the person who robs the bank and carries the bags. But I realize it might be the person who, like, signs the paperwork for the cons. So when the police come, it's like, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the Piezol dude. He's the guy behind it. Like, um barney in how i met your mother the sign everything and think nothing job <laughs> it's like barney what do you do i sign all the paperwork for the company that the company doesn't want to sign <laughs> it's dangerous holmes almost certainly had piazzol's help in torturing the castle in august 1893 after the fire piazzol left without telling his wife terror Haute, indiana to hide out he was arrested there in october carrying six to seven thousand dollars in forged banknotes and he's also got just a forgery thing going on the side. What? <laughs> it's about $225,000 today. In November, Holmes paid off Piezol's bail and he was released, skipping his trial. In December, Piezol headed to Texas in advance of Holmes to sort out the Fort Worth property that belonged to the murdered Minnie Williams. Naturally, Holmes was plotting another scam. He planned to build another castle on Minnie's lands. Holmes, Georgiana, and Carrie Piezol all arrived in Texas in late january 1894 a resident of fort worth describes georgia george i want to call her georgina but it's georgiana sorry yoke quite favorably but describes holmes as an arsehole and a bit of a cad quote except for habitual scrawl his face was not unattractive that scowl however ruined him for me it was a sneer at all the world and i get that he's not unattractive but he smells and he does extremely well with the ladies and he's just described as not unattractive that's it my dude holmes and piazzo bought materials for the fort worth castle on credit of course and never paid of course they initially paid construction workers for their services but after a couple of weeks they stopped and most of the workers quit yeah i mean if you don't pay anyone at the beginning it's you gotta have that panic of a uh, like first paycheck right where it's like but once you know a couple have come in you're like oh it doesn't matter if it's a couple of days late i know he's good for it and then just gradually that be coming comes like oh my god i haven't been paid in ages i need some money <laughs> thereafter holmes did each new construction job by hiring a different contractor each time and then never paying them the fort worth castle used the same architectural plans as the chicago one because holmes saw no reason to hire another architect to make something different the building was the same right down to the weird trapdoors and secret compartments but this castle was never used to house any businesses tenants or hotel guests meanwhile holmes took out tens of thousands of dollars in mortgages and loans on the buildings pocketing the cash the amount ran to at least fifty thousand dollars or 1.7 million dollars in today's money he may have even intended to burn down the building like in chicago or perhaps holmes might have learned his lesson we shall never know well, he still hasn't learned his lesson because he's still doing all of these cons. Which I guess he's like, well, nothing too bad happens. They just said I didn't get the insurance money, buddy. Not the end of the world. I'll just do another con with the bank instead. While in Texas, Holmes developed the habit of buying houses on credit and then selling them for cash and not repaying the original owners. And one thing you don't want to do while in Texas is f with Texas ranchers. In April 1894, yeah, this is the thing. We're always like talking about how the law is going to come crashing down on him. But at some point, surely someone he cons is gonna be a bit of a gangster and be like yo holmes pop pop and then holmes just disappears and he's never caught because the person was not bad at crimes and now he's dead 
In April 1894, Holmes operated under the alias O.C. Pratt and was indicted by the state legal system for horse theft. Meanwhile, friends of Minnie Williams, who knew the castle property was hers and that she had been missing for nearly a year, began to talk to the police. In May 1894, Holmes abandoned the Fort Worth castle and skipped town. He took Georgie to Denver and then to St. Louis, Missouri. In June 1894, Henry Mansford Howard, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes, thank you, David, uh, he does have so many aliases, it's getting confused. I'm getting confused like that court system gets confused. <laughs> How many lawsuits? He bought a drugstore that had fallen on hard times from A.P. Guest for $850, in exchange for Holmes taking on the store's debt. A.P. Guest was paid in promissory notes and stock shares in a fraudulent company that did not really exist. Holmes convinced the drugstore's estate lawyer, Doran, not to file debt paper so that he could buy some initial goods on good credit. Holmes then began to sell off the goods on the down low without repaying his creditors. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> Benjamin Piazzol and his family arrived in St. Louis in July. It was at this point that Holmes told Carrie Piazzol about his next plan. They were going to con the Fidelity Mutual Insurance Company out of $10,000, $342,000 in today's money. I know this $10,000 is $342,000 in today's money by heart now because it seems to be his default number. He goes for ten k, and I know what that is in 2022 dollars. By faking Benjamin Piazzol's death... Holmes would use his medical expertise to locate another corpse and make it look like Benjamin had died in a car accident. Why do I get the feeling he's probably actually going to kill off Benny rather than uh, find a corpse? I think that's going to be the con on this one. Carrie later claimed that she was not in favor of the plan and wanted Benjamin to go straight, but who knows if she was saying this just to avoid prosecution later on. Meanwhile, the world was closing in. On H.H. H. Holmes, in July 1894, Deputy Sheriff Rare of Fort Worth went to Chicago to figure out what exactly the fuck was going on. Who was this Pratt fella? While in Chicago, Sheriff Rea discovered the identical castle and uncovered Pratt's alias, H.H. Holmes. He also found out that nobody there had seen Minnie Williams in over a year. Rea also found out that Holmes was wanted for arson in Chicago, but that the statute of limitations was running out next month. Back in St. Louis, Missouri, Holmes took out two separate mortgages on the drugstore. Of course he did, telling neither of the loan companies of the other loan and pocketing all of the cash. When an inspector showed up at the drugstore, he found the place closed down in the middle of the day. The inspector got suspicious, informed the drugstore's estate lawyer, who contacted the police. Holmes was arrested in St. Louis in possession of $400, $13,000 today worth of unpaid goods that had effectively stolen from the store. Holmes was tossed in prison for the first time, amazingly. This is the first time, considering his absolute litany of crimes. In 1894, Holmes made bail and tried to flee. <laughs> no bail. He was arrested at the train station. Holmes was thrown back behind bars, and I imagine they didn't grant him bail the second time. Why did they have bail in the past when it was so easy for these guys to just disappear? He's just like, yeah, I'm just going to go to the train station. I mean, this time he didn't escape. But people just go, they change their name, set up a new identity. No worries. What's going on? While in prison, Holmes met legendary Wild West train robber Marion Hedgepath, who was arrested by the Pinkertons in 1891 for train robbery and was sentenced to a 21-year stretch. Holmes proposed to Hedgepath that it cut him in for $500 of the life insurance scam he was cooking up if Hedgepath could put him in touch with a crooked lawyer. Hedgepath suggested Mr. Jephthah Howe. After three weeks, Georgiana managed to convince St. Louis authorities to release Holmes pending trial for $800, $27,000 in today's money, which Georgiana paid by giving a separate loan agent fake land deeds in exchange for cash. Holmes was bailed out of prison on July the 31st. How the f*** are you giving him bail? 
I don't care if the bill's $5 million in today's money or whatever, or yesterday's money. He literally tried to skip bail and you caught him. There should be no bail. What are you doing? <laughs> Holmes made a run for it. Again. What are you doing, court system? First traveling to New York City and then on to Philadelphia. He instructed ben Benjamin Piazzol to meet him there. Piazzol left his wife and children behind in St. Louis. Penn Petzl arrived in Philly on August the 17th, 1894. Over the next two weeks, he wrote Carrie several letters saying that he wanted to go straight and settle down somewhere. Holmes, meanwhile, insistently pushed ahead with the plan to scam Fidelity Mutual by faking Benjamin Pietzel's death. The $10,000 payout would be split between Holmes, Carrie Pietzel as beneficiary, and the crooked lawyer, Jephthah Howe, who would smooth over the process of confirming the body was Benjamin Pietzel's. Benjamin rented an apartment at 1316 Callow Hill Street in Philadelphia. He used the alias B.F. Perry and posed as a merchant who bought and sold patents for new inventions. Pietzel did not expect to have any customers. Nevertheless, a man named Eugene Smith, a carpenter and amateur inventor, came by on August 22nd to sell Pietzel a patent for a handsaw that he had invented. This sounds like he's accidentally discovered on a... He's like, what sort of job should we do? What sort of fake business are buying and selling? I don't know, patents or some shit. Okay, buying and selling patents. Great fake big business. We'll set that up and you'll pretend to do that. And then <laughs> someone comes along and it's like, hey, I've got a patent to sell you. He's accidentally stumbled upon a legit business. He should have just done this. He should be like, guys, can we forget the insurance thing? I'm just going to do this now. This sounds good. I've already got one patent from some carpenter dude. It's a great handsaw. Check it out. Pietzel seems to have been legitimately interested and may have even seen a future for himself in the patent trade. Exactly. Smith paid Pietzel several visits over the next two weeks. On one visit, Smith saw a man he later identified as H.H. H. Holmes. It's unclear when Holmes decided to merge a murder Benjamin Pietzel rather than finding a fake body. Holmes told ya. Told ya! Holmes had been studiously paying the life insurance premiums on Piazzol since late 1893, so why not make his death a legitimate one anyway? It would spare Holmes having to share the money with Benjamin. Perhaps it'd also kill the rest of the Piazzol's family if Carrie wouldn't keep quiet. That doesn't look suspicious at all. <laughs> On September the 1st, Holmes left Georgiana at their rented apartment in Philadelphia. Holmes met up with Pietzel, who told Holmes that the scam had to be delayed as his infant son Wharton was sick and he was returning to St. Louis. The story was bullshit. In reality, Pietzel had gotten cold feet. Good for you, but I get the feeling he's not going to escape and planned to do a runner. It would seem that Pietzel really intended to go straight. That afternoon, Pietzel went to the tobacconist and bought a couple of cigars for the journey and went to a saloon where he got some small change to use on said train journey. On September the 2nd, Holmes instructed Georgiana to start packing their bags and that they'd be leaving Philadelphia that afternoon. Holmes left her at 10.30 a.m., went over to 1316 Callahill Street, and it was there that he bid Pietzel a good morning and tempted the alcoholic with splitting a bottle of whiskey as a means of saying farewell. Hey, it's 10.30 in the morning. You're going off. Let's get f***ed up. As half a bottle of whiskey, Jesus. As Piazzo got progressively drunker, Holmes spiked his whiskey with chloroform, which Piazzo drank and passed out. Wait, I think he had to breathe in chloroform. I didn't realize you could drink it. Holmes then, I mean, you can't drink it. Don't drink chloroform. But, like, as a way of making someone pass out, I didn't know. 
Hobbs then continued to pour chloroform down Pietzel's throat in the same fashion that he may have done to disgruntled inventor John de Brule way back in 1891, until Pietzel overdosed and died. Hobbs then broke a bottle of benzene, an industrial solvent used in explosives degreasing metal, and in 1894, in aftershave, course and laid a tobacco pipe and burned match next to Pietzel's body. The idea was to make it look like Pietzel had lit up too close to a bottle of explosive materials. Holmes then proceeded to light Pietzel's body on fire. Holmes then left to catch an afternoon train with Georgiana to Indianapolis. Benjamin Pietzel was dead and Holmes was now planning to murder the rest of the Pietzel family. The phrase, no honor among thieves, doesn't seem to cut it here. Yeah, 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 what a surprise. Holmes is a piece of psychopaths this is the thing like don't work or do crimes with a psychopath because they're a psychopath they are gonna betray you they're not they don't think like you they don't have loyalty they don't have feelings frenzy on september the 4th eugene smith dropped by piazzo's office again to discuss his nifty handsaw invention. Smith rather liked the man he knew as Perry and enjoyed talking to him. The door was unlocked and the smell of charred flesh hit Eugene the moment he walked inside. Moments later, he discovered B.F. Perry's body lying on the floor. Smith ran to a nearby drugstore and came back with Dr. William Scott, who immediately suspected foul play. Great job, Holmes. You made, you, you, your one job was to make it look like an accident, and the doctor who arrives on the scene immediately is like, something's up. This is mad suspicious. Let's have a look at his tummy. Oh, look, tons of chloroform. What, he drank loads of chloroform and then decided to have a smoke? Dr. Scott had expected to find a man burned to death in an explosion. What he found was a corpse that had been burned post-mortem, his tongue swollen and with chloroform leaking out of his mouth. Holmes, you are a medical doctor. How did you not know this? Even more would come squirting out when Scott applied pressure to Pietzel's stomach. Smith also noticed the broken benzene bottle had most of the glass shards inside it, not scattered about the room, as if it had exploded. Nevertheless, the coroner's inquest came back with a verdict of accidental death, just as... No matter the incompetency of Holmes, there will always be someone more important, more incompetent to uh, cover up for his incompetency. From Indiana, from Indianapolis, Holmes headed back to St. Louis to meet with Carrie Pietzel, having murdered her husband three days prior. Holmes told Carrie that the plan went off without a hitch and Benjamin was in hiding. Holmes then threatened Carrie that if she didn't do exactly as he shared, Benjamin would probably get arrested and so would she. Carrie Pietzel felt she didn't have a choice but to obey his commands. Holmes told Carrie to send her 14-year-old daughter, Alice, to Philadelphia to help identify Pietzel's body. The bent lawyer, Jephtha Howe, began drafting the paperwork to claim the insurance money. He told Fidelity Mutual that B.F. Perry was an alias for Benjamin Pietzel. On September the 22nd, a young Alice Pietzel and Jephtha Howe went to a cemetery in Philadelphia to identify Benjamin's corpse. They were joined by H. H. Holmes, who volunteered to help identify the body in his capacity as Pietzel's friend and business partner. Can you imagine she's going to identify that body, and she thinks it's going to be like a body double, and it's not, and she just looks at it and is like, Jesus Christ, Holmes, you found someone who looks exactly like my dad. Like, spitting f***ing image. Holmes, where's my dad? Holmes insisted to the coroner that the corpse was Pietzel. It was ambiguous. His skin was now rotting and it could be scraped away from the body. Lovely. Alice was duly brought in and she burst into tears. She identified her father's body by recognizing her father's teeth. Holmes later told her this was a trick that he'd learned in medical school. A check for $10,000 was promptly made payable to carry Pietzel and Holmes rushed back to St. Louis with it, sending Alice on to Indianapolis, where the teenager was told to wait in a hotel for Holmes. 
In St. Louis, Jephthah Howell took $2,500 in the money. Holmes took $7,000 of it, saying that Ben Pietzel owed him $4,500 for the Fort Worth Castle. Carrie accepted the story and was left with a measly $500. Having gotten a large share of the money for the actual death of Benjamin Pietzel, ruled accidental by the insurer, there was at this point no strong reason for Holmes to murder the rest of the Pietzel family. But in order to eliminate potential witnesses that could connect him to Pietzel's murder, Holmes decided to slay the entire family anyway. Because he's a psychopath, he looks at it logically. He's like, yeah, but they could get me caught. And it's like, Holmes, but it's a family, an innocent family. And he's like, yeah, but the court thing. I don't want to get caught. This logically makes sense. Because <laughs> he's a psycho. On September the 27th, Holmes demanded that Carrie Pietzel surrender 12-year-old Nellie and 8-year-old Howard, claiming that he'd take them to be with Benjamin. In a sick way, he was telling the truth. Holmes took the children to Indianapolis, collected Alice, and took the three siblings to Cincinnati. Holmes was joined there by Georgiana Yoke, his sham fourth wife, who he installed at a separate hotel and who he kept completely in the dark about the existence of the three Pietzel children. <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, Holmes realized that the law was looking for him. Horse theft in Texas, fraud in Missouri, multiple frauds in Illinois, and even fidelity insurance in Philadelphia began to suspect wrongly that the body wasn't Benjamin Pietzel's and that Holmes had participated in some sort of a con job. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was thus enlisted to track Holmes down. They're famously good. Trouble is coming. Holmes wrote to Carrie in St. Louis, instructing her to bring her 15-year-old daughter, Dessie, and infant child, Wharton, Indianapolis. Holmes and Georgiana proceeded there as well, with Alice, Nellie, and Howard traveling along in a separate train. In Indianapolis, Holmes installed Carrie, Desi, and Wharton in one hotel, Georgiana in another, and Alice and Nellie in yet another. They were all oblivious to the fact that they were in the same city. Holmes also separated eight-year-old Howard from his sisters, took him to a rental house in Indianapolis, murdered him, dismembered him, cremated him, and scattered his remains. He told Alice and Nellie he had enrolled Howard in school. The night of October the 10th, Holmes went to Chicago for a meeting with an unknown person, perhaps just to develop an alibi he never used. On October the 12th, Holmes arrived back in Indianapolis and took everyone in separate parties to Detroit, where they remained until the 18th. Holmes then caught wind that the Pinkertons were out on his trail, so he pulled everybody out and crossed the border into Canada, arriving in Toronto on October the 19th. Holmes then murdered Alice and Nellie Pietzel by poisoning them on October the 25th and burying their bodies in the cellar of a rental house on St. Vincent Street. That was what we saw at the beginning of the episode in the cold open. That same day, Holmes instructed Carrie, Desi, and Wharton to go to Ogdensburg, New York State, where he claimed Carrie would meet up with her husband. On October the 26th, Holmes took Georgianne to Prescott, Canada for one night, then went to Burlington, Vermont, where he used to be a medical student all those years ago. He wrote to Carrie and demanded that she come to Burlington as well, claiming that Benjamin Piazza was drunk and hiding from the Pinkertons in Montreal and couldn't make it to Ogdensburg, but he would join them in Burlington soon. This is all getting very complicated. You can tell he's kind of, you know, they're coming. They're coming. It's going to end soon. <laughs> In Vermont, Holmes attempted to lure 15-year-old Desi to a second location in order to murder her. This plan failed when she refused to go with him. While staying at her rental house in Burlington, Carrie told Holmes that she was fed up with waiting and was going to Canada to fetch her husband and other three children. Holmes abruptly got up and said he was going to get a gas lamp for the basement. Several minutes later, Carrie went downstairs to find him and discovered Holmes digging a hole in the basement and boarding up the windows. She refused an invitation to share a meal, and after Holmes left, she checked that all the doors and windows were firmly locked. You're just like, what are you doing in the basement? Digging a human-sized hole? We want to have some dinner? <laughs> F*** no. 
A few days later, Holmes delivered a supply of nitroglycerin to Carrie's rental house and set up a tripwire, rigging it to blow in the basement. The next day, he wrote Carrie, instructing her to carry the nitro upstairs in a probable attempt to kill her, but she refused to move it, thinking of the safety of the neighbors by moving an explosive substance. It did not really occur to her at the time that Holmes was trying to kill her and make it look like an accident. Nemesis On November the 5th, Holmes made the astonishing decision to take Georgiana to New Hampshire. He first went to the town of Tilton, where his quote-unquote first wife, Clara Mudgett, was living. Oh my god, she's from back in the day. <laughs> there, Holmes laid eyes on Clara for the first time in a decade and explained that he had been in a train accident which put him in a coma and had given him amnesia. It was only now that he regained his memory. Meanwhile, he had married Georgiana Yokes, a wealthy young patroness of a hospital who had nursed him back to health. Quite incredibly, Clara Mudgett swallowed this story, hook, line, and sinker, and embraced Holmes thrilled to have him home didn't she leave because he was super abusive no clara no his now 15 year old son robert was similarly excited to be reunited with his father please don't kill them you've already killed enough people why do you have to they would they had escaped and they'd got on with their lives no from there homs went to gilmanton new hampshire to see his mother and father levi and theodate mudgett there they were overjoyed to see the filthy murderer he repeated the story about the train wreck his amnesia and he introduced them to his new wife georgiana Holmes then spent the next two days in Gilmanton, going on a sort of nostalgia trip, visiting his childhood haunts. But it was in Gilmanton that Holmes was spotted by a Pinkerton detective and secretly followed. The Pinkertons were under strict instructions not to engage or arrest H.H. H. Holmes, while Fidelity Mutual Insurance built their legal case against him for fraud, now having suspected incorrectly that Benjamin Ketzel was alive and well. On November the 13th, the Pinkertons followed Holmes and Georgiana to Boston. Initially, Fidelity Mutual wanted an arrest warrant issued for Holmes on the basis that the coroner in Philadelphia was now claiming that Pietzel's body was a fake. It's <laughs> the one thing they're getting wrong, even though, I mean, come on. The Boston police considered this allegation weak and scrubbed it. Instead, they telegrammed Fort Worth and asked what Holmes was wanted for there. Sheriff Ray replied in a telegram in just four words, larceny of one horse. And that was good enough for the Boston police. This is like the least of his crimes. He's a horrible child murderer. <laughs> What's he want? He's nicking a horse. And I know horse theft back in the day was more serious, but not as serious as murdering children. On November the 17th, H.H. H. Holmes was arrested while strolling the streets of Boston for being a horse thief. While in custody, he was questioned about fidelity insurance, and he immediately confessed to faking the death of Benjamin Pietzel, who he claimed was now hiding in South America with Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Obviously, Holmes preferred to go down for fraud rather than multiple murders. This story was corroborated by the train robber Marion Hedgepath, who was still in a St. Louis prison, who had come clean when he realized he wasn't going to get his $500 commission for hooking up Holmes with the crooked lawyer Jephthah Howe. Holmes was extradited to Philadelphia to face fraud charges. I know this comes around to kind of help him out in the end, the not paying the guy in prison, but pay your accomplices. If you've promised to pay your accomplices if you're doing crimes, pay them. Holmes told police that they could find Carrie, Desi, and Wharton hiding out in Burlington. She too was arrested on charges of insurance fraud. Upon interrogation, Carrie said that she was beginning to think her husband was dead and that she was worried about the fate of her three missing children. Meanwhile, the lawyer, Jeb Thahau, was arrested in St. Louis for his role in the fraud scheme. He argued craftily that he didn't commit a fraud at all. He warned police that the body identified in Philadelphia was actually Pietzel's. Turns out, he was right. 
Throughout the majority of December 1894, Holmes sat in a prison cell thinking that he'd get away with murder and only get a two-year sentence for insurance fraud. Then on December the 27th, confronted by the allegations of Carrie Pietzel, Holmes changed his story. He said that Benjamin Pietzel had killed himself and left instructions to Holmes to torture the body so his family could collect the insurance. Suicides were not eligible, but accidents were. This is He's really thought this through. I mean, it's not going to save him because, you know, we're just doing an episode about, you know, we obviously know what happens. But he did think about it, didn't he? But a piazza was dead. Where were his three missing children? At this point, Philadelphia police began to be extremely worried that Alice, Nellie, and Howard were dead. Detective Frank Gayer was duly dispatched, and he spent the next eight months retracing Holmes's footsteps across the northern United States and Canada. On July the 25th, 1895, Gayer made the gruesome discovery of the bodies of the two girls in Toronto. Ah, the cold open. This set off a firestorm in the media. A crowd of 5,000 people gathered in front of the castle in Chicago to watch police excavate the basements. 5,000 people? Good lord. Newspapers began speculating that H.H. Holmes had killed a bunch of different people over the years, dredging up names like Julia and Pearl Connor, Emmeline Sagrand, and Minnie Williams. They also speculated that Holmes had killed a great many more people, including some of his own aliases that they mistook for actual people like Robert Phelps and Harry Gordon. Meanwhile, after a grieving Carrie Pietzel identified the scarcely recognizable decomposing bodies of Alice and Nellie, a small funeral was held for them. Their graves were never marked. On July the 29th, 1895, Holmes released a statement through his lawyer. Quote, Some bones may be found in Timbuktu or the Sandwich Islands that may be brought as incriminating evidence against me. I'm ready to stand trial anywhere in the wild, in the wide world as far as the charge of murder is concerned. Dude, <laughs> what does that even mean? You're like, yeah, they might find bones somewhere that link them to me. Yeah, but mate, when those bones are found in your basement, it's a little bit different, isn't it? On August the 19th, the castle in Chicago was firebombed by unknown perpetrators. They were unlikely to be connected with Holmes trying to cover up evidence. Instead, the perpetrators were likely a few people enraged at Holmes's murder of the two girls and perhaps countless others. On August the 27th, Frank Geyer located the remains of eight-year-old Howard Pietzel in the flue of a stove in Indianapolis. His teeth and bone fragments didn't even get a grave. In October 1895, the autobiography Holmes's Own Story was published. It admits to many swindles, but does not admit to murder. Holmes published it for money, still delusionally thinking that he'd only get two years for insurance fraud. He also blackmailed a number of people for money in order to keep their names out of it. At trial in November 1895, Holmes was found guilty of the murder of Benjamin Pietzel. When the verdict was read, Holmes just stared blankly ahead. On November 30th, he was sentenced to death. As such, he was never tried for any of the other murders. He quite likely killed nine people, possibly eleven in his career. After receiving the death sentence, Holmes made plans to appeal to the Supreme Court. He ate a big dinner in his cell, cool as a cucumber, and opened the evening newspaper. During his incarceration, he was subjected to physical and mental examination. He was recorded as aged 36, 5 foot 7, 150 pounds, excessively hairy on his body, with a penis and testicles noted by the doctors as unusually small. His psychological exam even unsurprisingly diagnosed Holmes as incapable of remorse, accepting no responsibility for his actions. In short, he was a psychopath. This seems rather out of its time, doesn't it? This sort of medical examination, mental examination, post-mortem, post-conviction. Liar. Thief. Filthy murderer. The Supreme Court rejected Holmes's appeal, and the execution date was set for May the 7th, 1896. Holmes said he expected as much and was prepared to die. In early 1896, Holmes received an offer of thousands of dollars to confess to the murders. Although the money was scarcely any use to him now, Holmes compulsively accepted and admitted to murdering 27 people, many of whom were still alive and well. 
<laughs> what are you up to? In his confession, he said theatrically, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact I was a murderer. No more than the poet can help the inspiration to song. After publishing his confession, Holmes began pretending to be insane, perhaps hoping at the last moment to cheat the executioner and get locked up in an asylum instead. When that didn't work, he became a devout Catholic and spent time reading the Bible and chatting with priests. The day before his execution, Holmes made a public statement denying that he killed anyone except Julia Connor and Emmeline Sagrand while performing illegal abortions on them. Holmes woke up on the day of his execution, saying that he enjoyed a wonderful night's rest. He ate a meal of dry toast, eggs, and coffee at 8 a.m. Thereafter, he was escorted to the scaffold. Speaking to the crowd, Holmes again asserted that he'd only killed two women by accident during abortion procedures. He then turned to his defense lawyer, Samuel Roten, and said, Goodbye, Sam. You did all you could. When the black hood went over Holmes' head, he said to the executioner, Take your time. You know that I'm in no hurry. The trapdoor was released, and Holmes dropped five feet. His neck did not snap. He slowly and agonizingly asphyxiated to death. His body contorted for several minutes, spinning around, his legs doing the dead man's jig. Holmes's fists opened and closed rapidly. Two people in the crowd fainted. Then Holmes's body relaxed. Fifteen minutes after the botched hanging, he was declared dead. In the end, it turns out Holmes was right. He wasn't in a hurry. Jesus. <laughs> nice dark. Dismembered appendices. Number 1. H.H. H. Holmes may have claimed in his obviously falsified confession to have murdered 27 people, but the hysteria surrounding his trial and the excavation of his Chicago castle made people speculate that he was butcher the likes of which had never been seen before in American history. Popular culture in the past 130 years have elevated Holmes's kill count to over 200. Most notable is the myth that the hotel Holmes used during the World's Fair in 1893 was a death trap designed to capture, torture, and murder unsuspecting guests. Hotels are naturally creepy places, so it makes for a good story. Alas, it is nothing more than that. I have to say, I was wondering through this whole episode. Like, when? But the hotel. But the hotel with the trapdoors and the things for the, 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 the traps and the death, which I might have mentioned in my video about him. <laughs> Apparently, it's a myth. Ah, the previous video, the biographics video, unless I misremember. But I definitely remember there being like traps and stuff in that hotel, which are apparently not true. Number two, H.H. H. Holmes is one of 99 gazillion people theorized to have been Jack the Ripper because Holmes lived contemporaneously with the Ripper killings, except that was in London. <laughs> there is, however, no firm evidence that Holmes ever traveled to London during the times that the killings took place. Moreover, the brutal nature of the Ripper killings is completely foreign to Holmes's cold and fastidious M.O. Number three, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo, and Leonardo DiCaprio were attached as executive producers alongside Paramount TV for a movie on H.H. Holmes. The plan then changed to make the story into a TV miniseries. At the time of writing, production has not yet commenced. Yeah, it's kind of, there's not been a show or a movie about this yet. It's weird considering how famous it is. Number four, what is perhaps most intriguing about Holmes's case is how he was a psychopath whose primary compulsion was fraud, theft, and deception, not murder. He may have gotten off in his pantaloons to lying and stealing but it is unlikely that he derived any emotional or sexual pleasure from killing his victims like other famous serial killers. It is, however, proof that a psychopath engaged in compulsive deception has no qualms committing murder if they feel their goals are threatened. Yeah, that's what I was saying, like, the thing about just because he doesn't feel anything properly, he's like, about the family, it's like, why would you kill the family? It's like, because I could have got caught. It, it just reduces my chances. Like, he's killing a family. He just doesn't care. No qualms. 
As such, in the wrong circumstances, a supposedly non-violent psychopath is just as much of a danger of a society as a classic killer. A harrowing thought when you consider an estimated 1-5% of the population suffers from some degree of psychopathy. That is, 1 in 100 people you meet in daily life, or even 1 in 20. Which is mental. I mean, some degree of psychopathy, can't that just mean like you don't feel things properly? Like maybe you're not as emotional as you should be, maybe you're not as like empathetic as a regular person? Then I think that's okay, you know, it's a, it's a sliding scale, isn't it? Like some people are super emotional, some people are less emotional, and some people are psychopaths. Like straight, cold-blooded psychopaths. Sleep tight, ladies and gents. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ. This has been a long, I'm looking at the clock time on this, it flew by, episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like button below, subscribe to this channel, that's always welcome. It also goes out as a podcast and a YouTube channel, so if you're watching one and not the other, I mean, that it wouldn't make sense to watch things twice, but you got what I mean, you can consume it in your preferred way. And uh, thanks for watching, leave a review if you're on podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.